This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, Bo Nix will be the starter at quarterback at the University of Oregon, and he's the guy, uh, of course, all over the billboards. Plural. Not just New York City, but a billboard for Bo Nix going up in Dallas, Texas. Part of the Heisman campaign as Oregon takes steps towards its season opener at home, Autzen Stadium against Portland State. Meanwhile, at Oregon State, DJ Uyangalele is your starting quarterback. That news uh, released today as DJ was informed yesterday that he will be the starter in week one as Oregon State prepares for its big-time football game at San Jose State on Sunday, September 2nd, Labor Day weekend, a Sunday kickoff in broad daylight, for crying out loud. So it'll be DJU. It'll be Bo Nix at Oregon. Those are the starters at quarterback at Oregon and Oregon State. And in the next week, you're going to hear from a variety of guests on this show. Dan Lanning, Oregon coach. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach. I am efforting DJ Uyangalele, Bo Nix. Who else do we want on the show? Bruce Barnum, the Portland State football coach, will join us next week in front of his game at Oregon. How will he play it? It's going to be a lot of fun, but I want to start with the expectations on the starting quarterbacks. What do you want, if you're Jonathan Smith, out of DJ Uyangalele? And who will be the backup quarterback in that scenario? Will it be Ben Gulbrinson? I think ideally Oregon State would love to see Gulbrinson, who was 7-1 and one as a starter last year, as the backup. And Aiden Childs, uh, preferably in a redshirt role, but who knows in today's world and transfer portal, NIL... Who knows how important that is for Oregon and uh, Oregon State as they move towards their season. I kind of am wondering if what we're going to see at the quarterback position at Oregon in the foreseeable future is mostly transfer quarterbacks. Is that the name of the game? Like, we've talked about that with a number of head coaches on this show. You know, and I asked Lincoln Riley, you know, at USC, I said, is this just what we're going to see And he said, I think this is kind of what we're going to see in this cycle. And Jonathan Smith has talked about, you know, ideally wanting to develop a young quarterback like Aiden Childs. But knowing that the reality in a season like last season, you had seven of the opening week starters in the Pac-12 conference were transfers. This week it'll be very, this year it'll be very similar with, you know, a guy like Bo Nix being a transfer, DJ Oyungalele being a transfer, Michael Penix is a transfer, Caleb Williams is a transfer. Cam Rising is a transfer. Uh, Jaden Delora is a transfer. You look around the Pac-12 conference, and while the conference has fantastic quarterbacks, what it really has is fantastic transfer quarterbacks. What are the expectations for Bo Nix in this season? 
503-417-7575. You tell me. If you're an Oregon fan, what are your expectations for Bo Nix? Are you looking for him to be that Heisman candidate who is uh, on the side of buildings in New York City and in now in Dallas, Texas? Are you looking for him to take the Oregon program somewhere it's never uh, you know, been before, really, to a national championship, not just a matchup, but a victory? Or are you talking about Bo Nix taking Oregon to the playoff? Are you taking? Uh, are you talking about Bo Nix taking Oregon just to the conference championship game? Like, what is success when it comes to Bo Nix with the expectations of this season? Because last year, I really did expect Oregon to get to the conference championship game, and I think it was a really disappointing finish as they lost that game to Washington uh, at home late in the season. Knicks gets hurt. They rebound, and it was kind of a scramble. Like, you know, will they be able to salvage uh, the, the game against Utah at home? They did. They found a way to win, even though he wasn't very mobile, even though uh, it, it, uh, that game was not without strategic mistakes and hiccups. Um, you know, they got by Utah, but did not get to the conference championship game because they couldn't beat Oregon State. And they couldn't beat an Oregon State defense that, uh, you know, really did have some problems against them in the first half of the game. And then, for whatever reason, the momentum shifted, particularly in the fourth quarter, where Oregon State was down 21 in the second half and 17 in the fourth quarter and still came back and won the game. So what are the expectations for Bo Nix? Is it, you know, minimally? Let's talk about minimal expectations. I think he's got to get Oregon to the conference championship game. I'm not going to be... One of these radio show hosts that says, oh, they got to win a national championship. I mean, of course, everybody wants to win a national championship, but feels like it's a, a, a couple of steps too big for Oregon right now in its current state. You know, I, I think they can dream about getting to the conference championship game. I think they can dream about being a possible playoff team. I think the Pac-12 can make a case straight face that it is the deepest, uh, one of the best and deepest conferences in the country this year. I think you're going to see five teams, obviously, ranked in the preseason top 25. Five of the top 18 teams in the polls are from the Pac-12. you got the reigning Heisman Trophy winner from the Pac-12. I think you've got brands like USC and Oregon and Washington and Utah and Oregon State all hailing from the Pac-12. But the question will be, what is making it uh, from an Oregon Ducks standpoint when it comes to the quarterback position? I need Bo Nix to stay healthy. I need Bo Nix to lead Oregon to the conference championship game. I'll let the Heisman stuff take care of itself. I think last year at about week eight or nine of the regular season, there was an awful lot of momentum for Knicks. Right about the game, the Cal game that they played, and I can remember talking to Kenny Dillingham, the offensive coordinator, immediately after the Cal game, and he was saying, you know, he trusts Bo Nix so much that Bo can change the play on the field and he's comfortable with it. And even if Bo changes into the wrong play, he knows that there would be a reason for Bo changing into the wrong play. So I think you you really want to feel that same level of comfort down the stretch with Bo Nix. And you want to feel like Oregon has a shot to get to the conference championship game. And I think making it would be get to Vegas, get to the conference championship game with Bo Nix as your leader. Still some questions out there if he's that guy. Like I've heard people say, like, oh, I love Oregon, but is he that guy? Well, I think he was last year before the injury to his foot or ankle or whatever it was. And conversely, the uh, the Oregon State equation, despite feeling a lot different in most years, like remember, both these programs won 10 games a year ago, I think the Oregon State equation is very much the same when it comes to DJU. 
He will be the starter. He's been informed that he's going to be the week one starter. I think Jonathan Smith has tremendous confidence in that quarterback room. He's got great depth with Ben Gulbrinson there and Aiden Childs there. But I think ideally they'd like to see DJ Uyunglele not be the subject, not be the topic of conversation throughout the season as far as is he the starter, is he still the starter. You don't want to be in week six or seven if you're an Oregon State fan wondering about, you know, is it time to go to Aiden Childs? If you're having that, if we're having that conversation on this radio show, right about, you know, week six or so after Oregon State has played Utah on a Friday night, it will be because DJ has not played well. And so you don't want that to be the topic of conversation. And frankly, this is one of these rare years. In my 20-plus years of covering Oregon, Oregon State, Pac-12 schools, whatever's going on in the western part of the United States when it comes to college football, this is one of the few times where I have lined up Oregon and Oregon State and said the expectation for these two programs is the same. Most years it's not. And we've had that conversation on the show where we talk about the resources at Oregon. We talk about the trajectory at Oregon. We talk about the expectations at Oregon. And we lower the bar for Oregon State. I don't think you do that in this season. I think the expectation is that Oregon State also, to make it, needs to get to Vegas, play for a conference championship. And it's why I think, of course, that final week game on Black Friday Right after Thanksgiving and as people are rushing out to buy big screen TVs at Best Buy and lining up at Target, that's about when Oregon and Oregon State are going to be on Fox. And people are going to be going, hey, like this is for I can easily foresee that game being the gateway for both teams to get to Las Vegas. It'll be at Autzen Stadium, Advantage Oregon. It will be, uh, you know, a, a game that will be uh, broadcast nationally on Fox, Advantage to both schools, but only one of them presumably, uh, can win that game and get, get to Vegas. And, you know, I really do see that game as kind of a gateway game to the Pac-12 Conference Championship. What are the expectations for DJ? What are the expectations for Bo Nix? 503-417-7575. Steven, the news, I guess it's not a shock. DJ Uyunglele will be the starter at Oregon State in Week 1. Uh, what was your reaction to that, and what are the expectations for DJ? Yeah, I was excited for DJ. Uh, you know, this is what we expected when he transferred to Oregon State, and I'm glad that Jonathan Smith made the announcement. You know, with a little time before the San Jose State game, because I do think it's important to have the guy at quarterback. You know, it's that one situation where you know if you have two quarterbacks, you have none. At least now the team knows who the leader is, who they're going to be looking forward to. So I think it was a good choice by Jonathan Smith to put DJ as the number one guy and announce it right now, you know, get some time and make sure the guys know he's, you know, he's the leader of this team. Now, expectations wise for DJ, I think you're right on in the fact that hopefully we're not talking a lot about DJ Uyunglele and like the plays that he's making, because he doesn't have to go out and make these type of plays for Oregon state to be really good this season. So for me, it's, it's more, I do want to see DJ, expectation-wise, elevate Oregon State to that next level. And they were almost there a season ago, but can he elevate the team, go from 10 wins to 11 wins, and really compete for a Pac-12 championship game? Like, I don't want to say that they need to make the title game for to be a success, but I want to see Oregon State take that next step because I know Jonathan Smith is a great coach, and he's taken the Beavers to a really very high level very soon, You know, maybe sooner than we thought they could be. But to get from a really good team to an elite team, that's really tough. And I want to I want to think that DJ 
is the type of quarterback that can get the Beavers that level. So that's what I want to see out of him. It's it's not necessarily wins and losses right now for DJ. It's can DJ make a play against a really good team that wins a game for Oregon State. I think that's the expectation for me. I've circled the Week 5 game on Oregon State's schedule. It's at home against Utah. It's the Friday night game. Of course, everybody's going to be going, hey, that's a big one. But I really think that the question for DJ at the quarterback position comes a week earlier. Jake Dickert at Washington State, tremendous defensive coach, has always had an idea of what to do on the defensive side of the ball. Washington State has not struggled on defense. Whenever they've had problems under Jake Dickert, it's been with their ability to score points and move the ball. He does tend, Dickert, to give opposing quarterbacks problems. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. Michael Penix Jr. had his way with Washington State in the Apple Cup, but he tends to give opposing quarterbacks who maybe are um, good but not great some problems. So I think he's going to throw a lot at DJ in that Week 4 game that will be interesting to watch because as much as I have the Utah game circled, if you really look at the start of the season for Oregon State, it's at San Jose State, it's home against UC Davis, it's home against San Diego State, then it's a road game in Pullman at Washington State, then home against Utah. I, I actually am looking more at week four. I would love for week four to be a strong performance from DJ at going into the short week with Utah, that Oregon State's questions are not at the quarterback position. And I think if that is true, I think it bodes well for the rest of the season. If we're talking about should DJ be the starter after week four, or if he's looking over his shoulder as the Utah freight train is approaching in week five, um, I think it's a big problem for, for Oregon State because I just love the way the schedule unfolds for the Beavers where you know those, those first three non-conference games and then it's at Washington State, it's home against Utah, it's at Cal, it's home against UCLA, tougher opponent at home, it's at Arizona, it's at Colorado, it's home against Stanford. Uh, you know, Aside from the last two weeks of the season, which are home games against Washington and road game against Oregon. I think it's a very manageable schedule for Oregon State. Would not be a surprise to see them sitting at 9 and 1 or 10 and 0 with Washington and Oregon in the final two games, but it it definitely hinges on DJ playing well at the quarterback position. And I think with DJ is one of those things where you want to see him beat the teams that he's supposed to beat because we know Gold Branson can do that. We saw that last season. He went 7-1. and one. He beat all the teams he should have and he even beat some teams he probably shouldn't have. So if DJ comes in and starts losing to teams like Washington State, you know, even though it is on the road, it's a tough game. If he loses that game, you know, what was the point of putting him in there? We know what Gold Branson can do. So you want to see the move elevate the Beavers, and I think that's for me. DJ's got to win those games that you're supposed to win, and then hopefully that talent elevates them against maybe the teams that you might be underdogs against. We'll talk more about the quarterback conundrums at Oregon and Oregon State and uh, the Week 1 matchups is Week 1 really taking place next week as Portland State will head to Autzen Stadium for the opener, and the Beavers will play on Sunday at San Jose State a week from Sunday. Um, and uh, coming up next, though, we're going to talk to Dwayne Hankins. He is the president of business with the Portland Trailblazers. What are the Blazers selling? What's going on with the G League team? We'll uh, check in with the president of the Portland Trailblazers. Dwayne Hankins is coming up. Really excited about this interview. If you have a question you want me to ask the Blazers president, tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. I'll try to slip it into the interview. 
So much more ahead on the Bald Face Truth. I want you to leave it here. Well, I think there's a lot of interest in the Trailblazers organization. There always is. Like, you know, as long as I've done this radio show uh, approaching 17, 18, 19, 20 years, I've lost count. Uh, you know, there's just always been interest in the Trailblazers. They are an institution in the state of Oregon. Of course, there are a lot of people concerned about the roster, what's going to happen, but there's a whole other side to this organization that uh, we always talk about on this show. I think we cover the business of sports probably more so than others. Uh, Dwayne Hankins is the president of the Portland Trailblazers and is joining us now. Dwayne, thanks for making time. Yeah, no problem, John. Thanks for having me on. Give me an idea. Um, schedule comes out. Uh, I'm sure that you know everybody else is focused on the roster, Damian Lillard, all that stuff. But where's the business mind of the Blazers today? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, you know, we come out with the uh, with a schedule on last Thursday, and, and we do everything we can to prepare for that. And that's usually when it starts to get pretty busy around here. So um, for us, schedule comes out, we start building ticketing packages. Our tickets go on sale on Friday for single games, and we're sort of off and running. I, I conveniently planned my vacation right before schedule came out because <laughs> it starts to pick up around this time. Yeah, I always wonder kind of what is the downtime for you guys. Um, you know, I know that – you know, when the team's winning, coming off a playoff run, and there's a lot of enthusiasm, it probably makes the sales reps' uh, jobs easier, t- season tickets easier, sponsorships easier. Um, how much more creative do you have to be maybe when you're not coming off uh, a deep run in the playoffs? I think the foundation that we try to set is, despite the product on the court, despite what the wins and losses look like, how do we as a business build – just that really strong foundation to be able to, to, to handle things. And so, you know, I would point to our renewal rate this year being close to 93% on season tickets, which is obviously a tribute to our incredible fan base who's been supportive and loyal through all that time. But it's also really a tribute to, um, you know, the hard work that our team does on the phones and listening to our fans and understanding our fans and just making sure we have a convenient slate of ticketing products whether that's a full season or half season or quarter season or what have you, to make sure fans have what they need to be able to go to the games if they want to. You mentioned C- single game tickets going on sale. You said I believe Friday. Um, you know, mm-hmm. is that just? Uh, are there packages within that, or or is it just single games? How do you how do you sort of market that? Yeah, we we are always on sale with season tickets in any form. So please feel free to to call us anytime for those. Um, but we always have single game tickets go on sale. You know, once we have the schedule come out and we give our season ticket holders the opportunity to purchase those tickets in advance of the general public. So those those sales will start sooner. But for the general public, those not connected to the Blazers in a tangible way from a season ticket perspective, um, they have that access starting on Friday. Yeah. Blazers president Dwayne Hankins is our guest. Um, Moda Center, you know, there's been some construction there. I know you and I have talked a little bit about what the league is doing, and I think you know they're making some standard uh some standardization across the league when it comes to access to the court for the teams and the players what's happening at Moda Center with construction a lot yeah it's been a busy summer and and I even go back to last summer we replaced the roof on the Moda Center you know like any building it's it's nearing um gosh uh 30 years of being around and so there's just some things that we need to get done the roof got done last year this year, it's uh, this big steel project that it's uh, one of our biggest capital projects that we've done individually. And that's just to get 
again, like you said, things up to code in terms of um, where the league wants um, media to be and, and how big the bombs are. It's really inside baseball, but really making sure that those seats are replaced. And for us on the concert side, you know, being able to do those conversions from um, from concert to game and game back to concert in a much quicker fashion. So the, the fans in those seats will experience, you know, better seats, um, a little bit different location, um, but it's really to help move our business and, and sort of evolve and get ready for things like concerts in a quicker way. People have told me over the years that, you know, the Moda Center building has got great bones, and then other people say, no, it's it's a little outdated. I don't get around the league as much as you do and see other buildings. How is the How are the bones of the building, so to speak, when you talk about comparing Moda Center to other venues? I think the bones of the building are, are in really great shape. I think the fact that you look and have – you know, the river right here, you have public transportation nearby and easy to access for our fans. You have parking that's really great and on site. I think those are the types of things that we look at and say the bones are really good. I think where we see opportunity, obviously, is on the fan experience and on the amenity side. And so, you know, that's things when you're in the building, um, you know, the concourses. One of the pieces of feedback that I heard early on getting this role was, you know, Portland is so unique and different and you walk in the Moda Center and it feels like every other building. And so we've done, made a real conscious effort in the last 10 years to make it feel more like Portland. And, um, you know, there's probably more that we can do in that respect as well. And the other thing I would say is, you know, our games are often uh, during the rainy season here in Portland. And so what you've seen in a lot of newer buildings or in updated buildings is these, you know, these big, these big atrium entryways where fans can wait so they don't have to you know, be, be soaked in the rain or the elements when they're getting the ticket scanned because of all the new changes that have happened in the last 25 years in terms of having fans have to get their bags checked and security measures and things like that. Dwayne Hankins with us, Blazers president. Uh, the launch of the G League team. Uh, how important is this to you guys and what can we expect? Incredibly important. And, you know, kudos to Jody, who really understood the value of this, not just from a business perspective where, I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to be a huge moneymaker, but on the player development perspective, it's really going to help our GM, Joe Cronin. I think we see it really as, on the business side, a real research lab, a real R&D opportunity. And so, you know, we've got some great employees. Hannah Grauer, who's going to run the team on the president's side, uh, has done a tremendous job building her team and her staff. We've done a, got a really great start on terms of season ticket sales. I think the Child Center is a fantastic place for the team to play, and we're really looking forward to – you know, doing all these things that we've, we've always wanted to try in our business, but in a much more sort of low-risk environment with the remix. So it, we're looking forward to it. Give us an idea of, you know, when you mentioned that, that laboratory that you have available to you, and what kinds of things can have you seen others try that maybe have translated to, to the actual NBA team? Or what comes to your mind when I say that, that lab-like atmosphere that you have there? It's heavily fan experience things, but... You know, uh, concession prices, um, you know, do you want to look at different things and, and see if there's different pricing for different items that might make more sense? Uh, start times for games, you know, we've always traditionally looked at 7 o'clock as the, as the optimum start time for every game and then 6 o'clock on Sundays, but does it make sense to try different start times? Um, you know, our ticketing partner there um, is, a, is a partner that's, that's different than what we use at the Moda Center. So it allows us to try sort of different elements in terms of how we package tickets and pricing together and, and what else we can combine with the ticket. So, um, you know, again, kudos to Hannah and her team uh, on that, but there's, I think there's plenty of things that we can try. And then the last thing I'd say is on the broadcast side, right? So 
we tried a lot of different things last year on our on our Blazers broadcast. Some of them worked really well, and some of them we were kind of trying on the fly. And to have, again, another low-risk environment like the G League to try some of those things before we take them to our big, big broadcast, I think would be a huge opportunity. Dwayne Hankins, our guest, Blazers president. Uh, you know, of course, I'm getting blown up right now during the interview with people who want to know how soon will Portland have a WNBA team. Does that cross your desk? Is that a conversation that's ongoing? <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a conversation that's ongoing. It crosses my desk. I do think that the folks who want to bring that team here are working really hard on it and committed to it and, and want to bring it here for the right reasons. And as the Blazers organization, we are very excited to uh, support it in any way that we can. You know, the more basketball that people get the opportunity to see, the better. And, you know, the summer months are often quieter here. And so we would love to be able to support a WNBA team if it came to fruition. I, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the the franchise, and this is a franchise that really has been an institution since the days of Harry Glickman and the Blazers as a founding franchise, or you know, as the franchise was founded in in Portland, uh, and how it has blossomed. There are a lot of concerns with people who say, "Hey, you know, we'd we'd love to see new ownership. The ambiguity is is not good. That uncertainty lingering in the background." From a business standpoint. How important is it for the franchise, in your mind, to have that kind of direction or or that kind of footing? Yeah, I think we have, you know, really great direction from, from Jody on down, to be honest with you. Um, you know, it's been, um, you know, since I got into this role about two years ago, we've completely changed the leadership with myself and Joe at the helm. Uh, it was Jody that thought it was incredibly important for business and basketball to have really great relationships, which... Um, you know, Joe and I have, have forged and built within our own teams. Um, you know, it's about bringing the right talent here, not just on the basketball court, of course, which is, is Joe's realm, but on the business side as well and making those kinds of decisions to, to do that. And we've made some changes along that front. I mentioned the G League where Jody's investment, I think, has been really great on, in terms of bringing that team so that it can help a development pipeline for the team. And then in the last two years, the amount of work that's gone into our practice facility you know, we went to Jody and said, this is one of the smaller facilities in the league and it's a heavy recruitment tool and this is an arms race. And, you know, we expanded the practice facility last year. This year we're redoing the kitchen and building a whole new food program that we didn't have existing. And so, you know, it, it obviously takes uh, us to come up with those concepts sometimes, but it's also Jody asking how we can be better. And, and she's really been open-minded about the types of things that we can do. And it's been really, really helpful. Dwayne Hankins with us, Blazers president. I really appreciate you coming on. You know, I'm not going to pepper you with a bunch of roster questions because I realize <laughs> that would be like asking Joe Cronin about, you know, the prices of tickets and stuff like that. But, um, you know, how much contact do you have, Dwayne, over the years? You know, I know you worked with Chris McGowan before who was fairly mm-hmm. accessible at games. Uh, you know, do you have an open door? If fans have concerns or questions, you know, uh, you know, is there any forum where – they could potentially reach out to you and and bounce those questions off you. Yeah, absolutely. We have, um, you know, if you see me at a game, feel free to come up and chat with me. You know, certainly send an email to uh, the the website on the the team. Um, You know, we love hearing that feedback. One thing I've always said about Blazers fans and worked in a couple different markets is that they really care about this team. Um, they really feel like a sense of ownership of this team, and they're not shy about telling you how they feel about it. And we learn something every time we hear those things. And so, you know, we're always an open door to wanting to hear those things and how we can do a better job. 
All right. Uh, Dwayne Hankins, president of the Trailblazers, thank you for joining us. I know you got a big season in front of you. I'd love to have you on, check in with you maybe mid-season, see how things are going. But, uh, you know, if you ever want to do one of those fan forums, uh, we used to do it back in the day. We'd take some questions, and uh, some of the Blazers uh, GMs and executives used to take questions, and it really connected them, I think, with uh, with the fan base. So that that I will leave that door open to you. Thank you, John. I appreciate you having me on, and look forward to hearing more about that. All right. Dwayne Hankins, there he is, president of the Portland Trailblazers. Don't at me and ask me why I didn't ask about Dame. He's That's not his, uh, that's not his area of expertise. I can say... That when things are humming on the basketball side, uh, you got to think it's easier on the season ticket sales and sponsorship front. It you know it's probably not as easy anywhere as it is in you know a place like Golden State. Um, you know uh, when the Lakers are humming and you know there's a lot of enthusiasm when LeBron first arrived with the Lakers, when Kevin Durant gets traded to the Phoenix Suns. Um, I think there's a uh, a lot of enthusiasm that gets drummed up uh, amid those things. But, uh, Stephen, I'm going to ask you about this because it's something we talked about on yesterday's show. I think it's really important that the Blazers either get resolution. I'm just going to say it. I think it's important that the Blazers get resolution on the Damian Lillard front before minute one of the season. And that, to me, doesn't mean he has to be traded. It just means I need to hear from Lillard that, if he is in uniform in Portland, then he's not sitting out because I think that really does inhibit people who say, hey, I want to see an early season game. Is Damian Lillard going to be in uniform? Like, that's a hard thing to sell if you don't know that. 100%. And I don't know exactly what Dame, like, if Dame comes out and says, you know, I really do want to be traded, that will definitely resolve the issue. I just don't know that he's ever going to do that like that doesn't seem like Damian Lillard's personality that he's going to come out and actually say it out of his mouth so I feel like while yes I agree with you I would love to have some resolution I'm afraid that we're not going to have any and it's going to come down to you know what you know just another game of chicken between the Blazers and Damian Lillard and his camp of what they're going to do whether they trade him whether they keep him whether they say hey Dame you know we're just going to keep him on the roster right now you better show up it's your contract you got to show up and do it and if Dame does or not I, I'm very intrigued by this I just, I'm, I'm with you. I would love a resolution. I'm afraid we're not. We're, we're not going to get one. I really don't think so. I, uh, I am concerned about it affecting the season. That said, I don't have high expectations for the season because if they trade Lillard and they do get a bunch of picks or young players, I'm not expecting a bunch of Ws. I'm expecting the Blazers to be back in the lottery, picking high in the draft again, possibly, you know, competing for one of the top three or four picks and trying to get another good young player to put alongside Scoot Henderson and and then build from there. But this Lillard thing, I talked about it yesterday. I got some pushback from Anna. I got some pushback from some listeners. It's annoying me a little bit that Lillard's being passive-aggressive. Am I out in left field on this, Stephen? Like, he unfollows the Blazers on Instagram. What's next? MySpace? I don't know. Like, just come forth and talk. I mean, you I, know? it's kind of just what what athletes do now like they are passive aggressive and they do it that way i will say this like i i find it a little i i don't know what i'm trying to think of the word what i find but i find it just i don't like the fact that dame did come out and sign the extension and now he wants to be traded before the extension even kicks in like that stuff bothers me like i understand that you can make more money that way but at the same time if you really don't want to be in portland 
you really couldn't have seen it a year ago when you signed the extension that you're not going to want to be in Portland? Because guess what? If he's a free agent, John, he can sign with whoever he wants to. He can play for any team in the league. But he decided to take that contract extension because it gets him the most money, and then you want to be traded to only one team. That doesn't. That's not how it works. That shouldn't be how it works. So I don't blame the Blazers for that, and it does bother me a little bit that Dame played it that way. Now, him unfollowing the Blazers, it is what it is. Like, that just that stuff happens. But at the same time, like, it bothers me that he t- he took the extension and then before it even kicks in, he's like, no, I don't want to be here. Like, at some point, a contract has to be worth something. And he's really making it so it's not. And he's trying to play the system. It does bother me a little bit. I'll be honest. And here, here's the other thing. I'll add a caveat to it. Because I talked to Bob Witsit, former Blazers president and GM. And I said, you know, what options do the Blazers have? And they said, well, it's not like he can sit out. If he sits out, the Blazers can not pay him. And so I think that's the only acceptable caveat. If he doesn't want to be here so much that he's willing to say, I don't need the paycheck, and he's going to sit out and give away the money, I might feel differently about it. I might go, okay, you really don't want to be here that much that you're not going to take the paycheck? Okay, g- goodbye. Um, but... Uh, you know, for me, it's it's not an indictment of his character. And I think, you know, maybe I was uh, people, you know, the people who called in yesterday were maybe really made me think about it. And I'm like, gosh, you know, do I have it wrong? And I think that's part of the beauty of the show is like, you know, it really as I took those calls, I took it to heart. And Anna's telling me, no, no, you're wrong. It's not wrong for Lillard to unfollow the Blazers on Instagram. This is, you know, it, but but I am with you, Stephen. Like, I don't think it's an indictment of his character that he doesn't want to be here. Okay, like in in an ideal any relationship, any work relationship, any personal relationship, you don't want to hold somebody captive like you don't want an employee who doesn't want to be at work with you to be there. But I do take exception to kind of the manner in which he expresses his displeasure. It's not James Harden saying my general manager is a liar and I don't want to work with him ever again. That's one end of the spectrum. But it's really passive aggressive, I think, to not say anything to cryptically tweet, to have your agent behind the scenes kind of calling other teams and and using the media to get your messaging out. Just come out and talk. Would you res- Just, would you respect it more if Dame pulled a James Harden and said, "No. Joe Cronin, you're a liar." Because you he no. could say that. He could say that Joe Cronin lied to him. He anybody could say anything. I I think the thing I would respect more is if Damian Lillard stood in front of a camera and maybe he'll do this at media day. And he looked into the camera at the fans who root for him and have bought his jerseys and have supported him and believe that he's this great community member. I think that if he looks into the camera and says, look, I'm like you. I've been here a long time. I'm super frustrated that this franchise didn't ever build around me. We have that in common. I was hopeful that they would listen to me when I said, hey, we really need to make, uh, we really need to put a roster together or, uh, maybe I'm not going to be here. They didn't do it, and I'm at a point in my career where I want to go play for a winner. Maybe I shouldn't have signed that extension. I could be in control of my destiny, but I would like to be somewhere else. Like I would have more respect for that than unfollowing the Blazers on Instagram and having his agent do his bidding. It's just it's disingenuous to me. It's passive aggressive. It's you know, come on. Like it in a weird in a weird way. It I feel like it harms Blazer fans. And it harms you know, kind of the psyche of the season more than it harms and, and, and affects the actual outcome that he's trying to get. Because if he really wanted to be traded, if he really wanted to be out of the organization, 
and the Blazers to get maximum value for him, the right tactic would always be to never say you want to be traded publicly, to not have your agent leak it to media members, to not unfollow the team on social media, but to turn to the agent in a face-to-face conversation and turn to your general manager in a face-to-face conversation and say, look, I want to get out of here. I'm going to play my ass off until you trade me, but I need you to trade me. I don't want to be one of those NBA players that has to go public and throw a tantrum and make the situation untenable before you do it. So I'm going to be a good soldier here, but you have to do be ethical with me in return and work like hell to get me out of here. Because then the yeah, Blazers are coming to the table with the Miami Heat or whoever, and they're coming with, you know in a way that is honest and honorable and with some leverage. And Because without it now... You know, the the Heat are never going to offer the best possible deal, and they back the Blazers into a corner that I completely understand. The Blazers are at a garage sale here going, hey, wait a minute, we don't want garage sale pricing on Damian Lillard. We'd like to get some retail pricing on him. And the only way to get that is to get to the season and make it clear that you're going to expect that he's in uniform and, and try to do the deal closer to February. Do you think that Dame is a little selfish the way he's gone about this and almost the fact that he's kind of doing Portland a little dirty by going public and making sure they don't get the biggest trade package available because I kind of think it, it kind of goes with this game on the court. Like he He's not a selfish player, but he kind of is a little selfish of a basketball player. What do you think about it? Doesn't play a lot of defense, shoots a lot of threes all by himself, a lot of on-ball screens for him one-on-one. He's kind of pulling that off the side here. The Blazers have given him a lot of money, and I understand that money's not everything, and they may have lied to said we're going to build around you, but he's kind of been a little selfish in this whole situation, and I think it's hurting the Blazers' fan base. It's hurting the franchise. Because you're right, we have no idea what to expect about this season because we have no idea who's going to be on the roster. Is it going to be Dame? Is it going to be anybody else? Who We have no idea. First season in a decade where you can't say, hey, I know kind of who at least. Give me, you know, give me – four players that are going to for sure be on the court on opening night. Like we don't we don't quite know what to expect. Because if you're the Blazers, and, yeah. if you're the Blazers and you want to trade Dame, you're going to want to trade Nurk as well. You want to be and as Nurk, bad as Nurk, possible. Nurk is listed as house for sale. Like, you know, it's there's all of this uncertainty that is going on in the background. Like Nurk is the type of player John where it's like he's good enough to win some games, but he's not good enough to build your team around. So you if you're a rebuilding team, you don't want that guy in your team. And so if you're the Blazers, you want to trade Nurk in that Dame piece in the Dame trade. But if Dame's still on the roster opening night, Nurk's going to be on the roster opening night. Like, what do you do in that situation? All right, so here's the other thing. You asked the question, like, is he, is he doing Portland dirty? I'm not going to go that far because I think the average NBA player is so ridiculously out of touch with the public that I don't think that's a fair assessment because I just don't think they have lived or played by the same rules for as long as they have been in the NBA and, you know, I'll go back to LaMarcus Aldridge, who, you know, I had a great relationship with LaMarcus, really enjoyed covering him, found him to be, you know, on the level, good guy. But, man, one day he was complaining about being tired. And he's in the locker room, and he was complaining about, you know, how tired he was. And I just kind of looked at him, and I said, tired like your mom when she was driving a bus? Because his mom drove a bus. And he looked over at me, and he smiled, and he goes, different kind of tired. Like, you know, they down deep, I think – they, there, there is an entitlement in professional sports in general that players, when they leave the game, struggle with. They leave the game and suddenly they're, you know, they're not getting the reservation. They're not having the door held for them. So people stop asking them for autographs and stop asking them to be on radio shows and for TV interviews. 
So things change after they leave the game. But I think what Damian Lillard is trying to do here is he's trying to say, hey, it's been really hard on me. He's given a couple interviews to that extent. This has been really difficult. Stuff away from basketball is, you know, way harder. And I think he's really struggling with, like, all right, how do I bridge to that next job and that place I want to be, Miami, without being a jerk to the place that I was? And because James Harden will do it. James Harden would have turned on Portland already. So I'll give Dame that credit. But I just think I think he's a little out of touch. Like the unfollowing on Instagram, he knows what that's going to do. I think that, that affects the fan base and the psyche of the fan base more than it affects Joe Cronin's ability to get a deal done. You know, it's a passive-aggressive move that says, you know, I'm, I'm mentally out of here. I don't want to be part of the Blazers organization anymore. Well, we already know that. And that's not going to help the trade value as Portland comes to the table with Miami. And so I'm kind of left thinking, like, you know, on one hand, I think it's really relatable. Blazer fans can relate with what Damian Lillard has been through. You've been there, too. And in a lot of ways, I think it's harder for fans than it is for Damian Lillard, who was cashing a paycheck and making 40 to $50 million a season. But by, uh, by extension of that, I also think the Blazers, who I am hypercritical of all the time, I will nitpick them left and right because they deserve it some days. But on this one, I actually don't blame the Blazers for holding out for the best possible deal. They've got one big poker chip to play here. They've got to make this hand count. And so they can't take pennies on the dollar for Damian Lillard. I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575. Number of stories that I need to get to on today's show, including uh, the uh, cheap shot. You see the uh, Eagles-Colts story? Uh, Sideline clearing brawl between the Eagles and the Colts at the joint practice today. The fight was sparked when uh, Jason Kelsey, the Eagles center, apparently blindsided Zaire Franklin at the end of a play, dropped the Colts linebacker to the ground. Um, By the way, Kelsey appeared to uh, take issue with Franklin getting a little physical with uh, running back Kenneth Gainwell uh, on the prior play. Um, uh, Kelsey admitted that his cheap shot, his hit on Franklin was a cheap shot. He said, I pride myself on being a guy that sustains my emotions and I let my emotions get the better of me. He did not meet up with Franklin after the practice because he said tensions are a little bit too high for that right now. Um, he's a respected player. I, I kind of like that at the end of it he acknowledges, yeah, it was a cheap shot. <laughs> you know, he knows that he was. It's a, it's a great way to get on the good side of your, of your teammates in the camp, right, in preseason. Everyone knows that he's all in now with the Eagles. Yeah. Yeah, all the Eagles know that. And then you got to respect it a little bit if you're on the other side of that. You go, okay, the guy knows it was a cheap shot. I think most players do. Like, you know, I, it's interesting because I've been in a lot of locker rooms and I've talked to a lot of athletes over the years. And, you know, trust is obviously something that is built when you have a relationship with an athlete. But I think when you get an athlete like, the you know, Travis or Jason Kelsey, they've been in the league a while, they are well-respected, you know, they have good relationship with reporters. They're not going to lie to you. And I can remember having frank conversations with players like LaMarcus Aldridge uh, with the Blazers or Damon Stoudemire with the Blazers. Um, to this day, I still stay in touch uh, loosely with LaMarcus, but I hear from Damon uh, frequently. You know, you know, Damon reached out when the Plaque 12 broke up, you know, a couple of Fridays ago and was, you know, asking all kinds of questions about it and saying how much, how sad it was to see the conference that he played in. Uh, you know, implode especially and blaming leadership. And, 
you know, I think it's interesting to have that kind of relationship with athletes. And, you know, a guy that comes to mind, LaMichael James with the Oregon Ducks, comes to mind as a player like that, Derek Anderson, the former Oregon State quarterback. I, I have had multiple occasions with athletes that I've covered extensively where they could have lied to you or they could have, you know, acted like they didn't know. But I think in the end they know. And most athletes know down deep whether they've done something dirty or not. Now, I don't expect Dylan Brooks, who's getting, you know, attacked left and right as being a dirty player, to to be able to look up at a group of media around his locker and say, yeah, it was kind of a dirty play, but, you know, I, I, I was frustrated. Like, he's not going to do that. But I think when you get a, a guy like Jason Kelsey, who can admit that it was a cheap shot, like, you leave that interaction with more respect for him than you did when you got there. It's kind of like when Damon Stoudemire, you know, once upon a time stood at his locker and said, hey, man, I'm I'm done with getting in trouble. I'm done with, you know, bringing weed through an airport metal detector. I'm, you know, I'm done with all that. And I said, yeah, I don't believe you. And he came back to me and he's like, hey, what do you what could I do to make you believe me? I don't know. Submit to a random drug test. OK, done. Like, you know, when you get an athlete who's willing to take a leap of faith and do something a little outside the box, or just be honest about the fact that they know they've screwed up, just goes a long way. It's kind of like when an umpire or an official blows a call, and the manager or the coach comes racing towards them, irate, yelling at them, gesturing wildly, and the and the umpire or the official goes, I missed it. You just see it. Like, sometimes that happens, I can see it on TV, and you just see the person who's upset just totally shut down. Because there's nothing they can say in response to, I blew it. I missed it. You're right. There's no there's no reasonable reaction to that, that that rectifies it. And I think, you know, as we're getting better equipment, better, you know, the ability to track pitches and see if a pitch is six inches outside and, you know, watch uh, HD replay where we can see did his foot touch the line or not. Like, you know, we've become a less forgiving society. Right up to the point when, you know, a guy like Jason Kelsey goes, yeah, it was kind of a cheap shot. So I respect that. All right, Punch It Audio is coming up after the break. Anna will join us in the 4 o'clock hour as well. Hour one flew by. Dwayne Hankins, Blazers president, was with us. By the way, uh, I didn't tell him this, but it's been a while since I had a Blazers president on the show. They were typically... uh, uh, allergic to coming on the show uh, when Paul Allen was with us still. No longer. The Blazers have broken their silence on this radio show. Um, you want the podcast of that uh, of that interview? You can grab it wherever you find a uh, podcast. Good stuff with Hankins. We're going to play some Punch It audio. We have great sound today. By the way, including a clip of the North Carolina women's soccer coach I nearly fell out of my chair when I heard this Stanford and Cal trying to get into the ACC North Carolina among those currently who have uh, not voted yes was supposed to be a meeting today of the ACC presidents it was postponed it's leading a lot of people to speculate that Stanford and Cal do not have the votes. Anson Dorrance is the soccer coach at North Carolina. 
I think I should just play this independent of Punch It Audio because it's so good. Uh, we'll play Punch It Audio, but Anson Dorrance is the coach at North Carolina, women's soccer coach. He basically says he wants Stanford and Cal to die on the vine. He said it out loud, the quiet part. This is this is his comment in an interview with a local TV station. Well, I appreciate you allowing me to speak on this because I know our conference commissioner is in favor of this because I read a, a statement that he made where he thought this would be a good idea. Because obviously these are phenomenal schools academically. Uh, but also they have great sports programs. If you look at the Director's Cup, Stanford dominates it. So you're bringing in... Uh, truly elite combination of academics and athletics with those two schools, but Stanford extraordinarily. I mean, they're on the top of everyone's academic list and also very high with their, almost every sports team on campus being in a position to challenge for a national championship. So that would be a wonderful, you know, I guess, a feather in the cap of our commissioner. But for us, you know, uh, with boots on the ground, now, uh, this is going to be horrible for us because then, of course, our budgets are extraordinary as it is. And now we would try to add in, you know, flights across the country to play these two schools, uh, which will be incredibly expensive. And then the fact that uh, um, now we're exposing the whole country, not that Stanford and Cal don't have a national recruiting platform. Of course they do. But if you put those two schools in the ACC, it's going to be so easy for them to recruit nationally. So it'll just benefit them, in my opinion, not us. We've built the best uh, women's soccer conference in the country, and there's no way I want to share the glory of our conference with two schools that could do a very good job recruiting against us. And so basically, I want Cal and Stanford to die on the vine. I look forward to you know, seeing Stanford, which is a very difficult school to recruit against. I would look forward to them basically having it be so difficult for them to recruit the elite soccer player and then we would be in a position to obviously gain those kids and you know, put the ACC in an even stronger position. So I think uh, in some respects I can see why um, Jim is interested in this you know, as our commissioner of the ACC. But for us that you know, have to basically do the, the work and have to pay for it, no. And these are schools that, you know, yep, they're in trouble. They're in trouble. It's going to be harder and harder and harder for them to recruit. And that means that benefits the rest of us in the ACC. All right, there it is. You would like Stanford and Cal to die on the vine. A couple of quick reactions. I think he's been incredible, authentic, incredibly authentic. Uh, and I think he's saying what some others won't say. He's also not in a position at North Carolina as the women's soccer coach. He's not really the voice of North Carolina. But he's in this position as a 72-year-old coach who's been highly successful had his team playing at the top of the NCAA um, field in his sport, where you know he's a little bit like uh, you know a, a Tara Vanderbeer at at Stanford, where he can kind of speak out of school a little bit, and people are going to listen to him. Um, Anson Dorrance is basically laying out the argument against Stanford and Cal, and underscoring what we talked about on yesterday's show with Jordan Acker, who you know outlined basically that the idea, the absurdity that Stanford and Cal aren't part of the Big Ten or weren't attractive to the Big Ten kind of underscores the problem. They just weren't good in football. And they and the brand didn't bring enough to football to have the Big Ten Conference fall all over itself and say, hey, we have to have those schools. The academic profile of Stanford, the media market of the Bay Area, sixth biggest market in the country, not big enough 
to have the attention of the Big Ten Conference. And frankly, it's been arguable whether they're in the best interest of the ACC. But I hear Anson Dorrance saying it out loud that he doesn't want Stanford or Cal, mainly Stanford, in the ACC because he knows it's going to be hard for them to recruit in a left-behind Pac-4, and he doesn't want to bring them on par with the ACC. Simultaneously, let's not be fools here, Stanford doesn't want to go to the Mountain West and say, hey, give us Boise State, give us San Jose State, give us Fresno State, give us San Diego State. We'll take all of those schools wholesale into the Pac-4. They don't want to do that either because they'd be doing the same thing that North Carolina is avoiding doing here with the ACC promotion. I just thought it was really interesting to hear somebody finally speak out loud and say, hey, I'm a coach. I'm boots on the ground. I get it. They'd add some media value for everyone else. Not enough value to make us look the other way, though. Not enough value that I would be willing to say, hey, let them recruit on an equal footing with with my North Carolina women's soccer program. No, Anson uh, does not want to give up the advantage he has. He's in a Power 5 conference. He he knows if he brings Stanford on that level, Stanford's got better academics, and Stanford can tout a better athletic department overall. Even though North Carolina's, you know, dominant basketball program historically, Stanford from, you know, in the Olympic sports down, you know, beat it or better than anybody in America at what they're doing. And so I just think that is a really interesting i don't want to criticize the guy for it because i think he's being honest i think he's saying what you know the rest of us know is probably true in a lot of cases and it's the same reason why let's face it it's the same reason why some of the schools in the big 10 conference you know uh you know probably should be a little nervous indiana rutgers maryland should be a little nervous because if further consolidation happens you better believe that, like Michigan and Ohio State and some others, are going to look around and go, well, "Why are we including them in this? Why is Northwestern in the Big Ten? You know, Northwestern doesn't bring anything to the table when it comes to football. Like you're going to have those conversations internally as further consolidation happens, and that's why, you know, I'll go back and I'll make this about Oregon State and Washington State for a second for Beaver fans and Cougar fans. That's why it's so important that Oregon State and Washington State find footing in this cycle. Because if they can get some footing in this cycle and they can continue, even as a non-Power 5 conference member, to fund the programs and to matter until there's further consolidation and another opportunity, then they got a puncher's chance to make an argument, hey, we should be included. Football breaks away. We're a top 60 program. We should be included. Like, you know, we're better positioned than Rutgers. We're better positioned than Indiana in football. We're better positioned than Northwestern. Speaking on behalf of both Oregon State and Washington State. Because that's the challenge. Like two, three, four, five years from now, when this all goes happen, it happens again, and uh, there's a round of consolidation, or, or better yet, football splinters away from everything else. You want to be positioned to be part of it instead of not part of it. Let's play some punch it audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Bill Simmons talking about Damian Lillard. 
so far, it's a list of one team that Damian Lillard would really want to be traded to. Bill Simmons says maybe you should expand the list. Punch it. You wonder if Dame Lillard's watching this going, you know what? Yeah, me for Towns? You just switch us. We have Gobert. We'd have Edwards. It's kind of nice. Me and, me and Ant together, I'd be aligned with this guy who's clearly going to be one of the best five or six guys in the league. Maybe that's a better situation for me than anywhere else, and I want to win a title, and this doesn't seem unrealistic to me. F*** it. Minnesota. I'm adding them to the list. Minnesota added to the list? Why not Utah? Why not some other places? I don't know. I think in the end, why why is it always incumbent upon the player to give the team the list? Why shouldn't the team just be going out and getting the best possible deal that it can get? And, uh, you know, you're under contract. You want to be a free agent? Be a free agent. Um, you know, within reason. You know, I, I think there's a lot of Blazer fans would like to see Damian Lillard be successful. But in the end, not at the expense of the organization. David Shaw, former Stanford coach, talking about the downfall of the Pac-12. He says he saw it coming. Punch it. I don't think, and of course we all know, it's not completely settled yet. There's still a lot of things that could happen. Um, none of us, us, I'm talking about not just being the former head coach there, but being uh, an alumnus of Stanford and all the people I know, my friends and colleagues, and just it's just difficult. It's difficult when you look at all the players from this conference that should have a lasting legacy, that it should not just disappear to, to zero. You know, you're talking about Jim Plunkett, John Elway, Andrew Luck, right? The whole line, Christian McCaffrey, all these guys, they should have a legacy. Those records should exist someplace. Um, so you hate for the conference to disappear. But at the same time, it, it's a new era right now. And uh, if you don't play by the rules that everybody else plays by and you sit and wait, you're left out. And that's where the conference is, and that's where my school is right now. It's interesting because in the last 12 hours, I'll even say in the last 24 hours, I've become increasingly confident that the Pac-12, the entity the Pac-12, may have better legs underneath it than than a lot of us believe, or maybe the rest of the country believes. I think the assets that they are uncovering that belong to the conference and not the members le- point me in a direction that make me believe, to David Shaw's point, that the entity called the Pac-12 will live on. Do you understand what I'm saying, Stephen? Am I talking in a circle here? Well, yeah, and that's been my thing the whole time is the Pac-12 has been downgraded i feel like so much the last year or so ever since ucla and usc left that like is there still enough you know reputation good reputation enough with the pac-12 like is that still around and you think there there is i think here's what i think it's it's hard for me because i think if you're a smart listener you're going to understand what i'm saying here and i'm not ready to say it fully but i'm going to talk around it and i'm i want you to follow what i'm saying i believe you know, I am being told that Oregon State and Washington State have two parallel scenarios that are going on. One of them involves Stanford and Cal and the four teams rebuilding the Pac-12. We've talked about that one. So I think that's out there, and I think there's about a 50% chance that that happens. Second one is just Oregon State and Washington State. But I'm told it also involves either some kind of rebuild or a merger 
that leaves Oregon State and Washington State playing in, air quotes here, the Pac-12. Now, it could be that that second version includes some Mountain West Conference teams. And I reached out to several Mountain West Conference presidents who didn't want to talk on the record. and Some would talk on background. And the general thought that I, that I came away with was that the Mountain West Conference believes that there are some assets that are locked in the Pac-12 Conference's brand, including the Pac-12 networks, the production capability of the networks, the facility, including the NCAA tournament revenues for the next six years, including the emergency fund. It's unclear definitively what else is in there, but they're exploring that now. And I think the Mountain West Conference is awful interested in hearing what is there. And I, what I could foresee is if it's Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, Washington State, and I'm spitballing here, okay, don't hold me to this. But if those four were to try to rebuild the conference, I wouldn't be surprised if the Mountain West Conference approached the Pac-12 and said, look, we would like to benefit from the assets that you have Some of our members feel like they belong in a division that would include Stanford and Cal. And we would like to explore creating a Pac-12 division and a Mountain West Conference division that would operate under the same conference umbrella. Meaning Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, Washington State, probably San Diego State, maybe Colorado State, become the Pac-12 Conference division. And the Mountain West Conference division is everybody else, minus those Mountain West schools that bounce over. Could be more, could be less. I think there's an appetite for that right now. And and I know people are going to roll their eyes and go, hey, it's not the Pac-12. But but to David Shaw's point, I think the conference in name would still continue to be there. And part of the hope and theory, I think, is long-term, is if football gets splintered away, that it would give Arizona State, Arizona Oregon, Washington in particular, somewhere to come home to in their non-revenue generating sports if football splinters away. You're going to need a regional conference. I remember David Shaw on Media Day a couple years ago. He, he said, geography will win. I think it was really interesting. Well, I think what you said there was super important of if football does splinter off, because if it does you want to have a landing spot for these other teams that were in the Pac-12, right? Like, I think that's very important. I think that actually, you know, for football splinter off, I think it seems more likely than not at some point it eventually will. So you got to have some type of uh, landing spot for these other teams, other schools to go back to so you're not flying, you know, coast to coast for every single sport. Yeah, and I think I think that's part of the thinking, and I think, um, I think Stanford's probably more tuned into it than most because Stanford does value their non-revenue generating sports. Todd Bowles. Naming a starting quarterback, who is it in Tampa Bay? Punch it. Baker's our starting quarterback. Kyle's number two. I mean, Rick, there's a lot that goes into it. I can't sit up here and give you every detail. You know, we go through many camp, training camp and OTAs, and we love everything Kyle has done. And he's gotten leaps and bounds better than he has in the spring, and he's continuing to get better, and we're excited about him. Uh, Baker's our guy right now, uh, experience-wise, and understanding the playbook just a little bit better. But Kyle's on the come, but we like both guys. We like where we're at. Baker's one, Kyle's two. Fascinating quarterback battle in Tampa. You know, we've talked on this show about 
J.J. Uyunglele being the guy at Oregon State. We're at that time of year where the NFL teams and the college teams are all naming their starting quarterbacks. Jaden Rashada will be the starter at Arizona State, for example. Of course, Bo Nix at Oregon. Moving on. The Timbers have fired Giovanni Savarisi, their head coach. This comes in the wake of a uh, embarrassing loss the other night. Here's the general manager, Ned Grabavoy, punching. This uh, was an incredibly difficult decision. Uh, without question, the hardest decision that I've had to make or be a part of during my time at the club. Uh, and that's for a number of reasons. Gio Savarisi is an incredible person. Uh, he's a great coach, and he's someone that has helped move this club forward, and he's had a tremendous amount of success with us. Those things make the decision you know, that much more difficult. I think there were a number of factors you know, for where we're at in this profession. Unfortunately, at times, there's a life cycle to where we are and what we do, uh, and I do think at this time, it's best for the club to have a new voice. And the decision was made with the best interest of the club for both the short and the long term. Um, and obviously for myself and from a lot of others, we wish Gio all the best moving forward. Giovanni Savarisi took the Timbers to two MS, MLS Cup appearances and uh, has the team currently sitting in 12th in the Western Conference table. Five points off the postseason pace with 10 games to go. Merritt Paulson, owner of the Timbers, in a release said, quote, Gio has been an exceptional coach for the Timbers and a joy to work with, end quote. Savarisi, uh, third coach all time. Previously, uh, Caleb Porter, John Spencer, uh, led this team. And uh, the uh, club will... Get an interim coach. Assistant coach Miles Joseph will be the interim coach for the remainder of the season. Uh, I just thought the other night, after I think it was a five nothing loss, it caught my attention because it was the kind of loss that suggested he's lost the team. I, it's difficult to do that, and I, you know, I'm not. I don't profess to be like soccer guy, but it was. They played Houston. On the road, five zip, and I went, huh, that's hard to do. And I can remember only one other time in Timbers history for the club to look that bad in a loss, and it came in a Caleb Porter loss at home. It's like a 3 nothing or a 4 nothing loss. And I remember Porter after the game confiding that he was concerned about morale in the locker room and just one of, it was one of those games. And I think, you know, that 5 nothing. Result, as they say in soccer, was uh, was a telling result. Leave it here. Anna's popping into the studio. So much more ahead. You got the BFT statewide. Want to give a shout out to our listeners in Eugene. Powerhouse Signal, Fox Sports Eugene, ten fifty a.m. Now on one hundred two point nine FM, Fox Sports Eugene. So if you're listening in Eugene, you want to hear it in the FM. You can flip to one hundred two point nine FM. Or catch it as you always have on 1050 AM. 
Uh, very cool to do that, to have that opportunity in Eugene. Steve and the team there celebrating today. Uh, big victory there is they've got two signals now, 10.50 a.m., 102.9 FM. Just lock them in both ways. Like, I don't ask for a lot. Do I? Do I ask too much? Look, um, I here's what I ask of you. Uh, when you listen to the show, if you happen to be in your car or wherever you're listening and you have the ability to preset the station that you're listening to right now, you can reach out and you can make a commitment to me and our staff and Anna and this show by locking us in as one of your preset favorites. I don't need to be number one. Top two or three. Okay. Like if you have a, you know, uh, a news station you like or a Spanish language station you like that's in front of us, I can live with it. But I need to be, you know, on your speed dial. Anna's in the studio. She is here, fresh off her birthday celebration yesterday. How did I do, Anna? Did I did I celebrate you adequately yesterday? You knocked it out of the park. I did? Yes. Really? Yeah. I didn't feel like I was... I've been more prepared in other years. Uh, i got to be honest with you. Dude, you took me out of state to a sunny place. Okay. That had, counted? That counted? Yeah. That, that's part of the birthday? Yeah. Okay, so when I'll it came it. to the actual yeah, day, when it came to the actual day... <laughs> My expectations were, you know, measured. Thank I really, goodness. I mean, I, honestly, like, I had a great day just hanging out with the kids because they're heading back to school here in a week, and uh, I'm starting to miss them already. I know. I'm that mom. They're at that age, too. When I see them, because of the older daughter, yeah. got to give her an assist on this one. Totally. Um, I, right before the show. Yeah. You were out of the house, and the girls were home alone, and they were just raiding the freezer and getting ice cream sandwiches and brownies home alone like you you went somewhere when i wasn't here you know no 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 you left them home (laughs) okay so they were just doing what they do they just run rampant over me right and uh i saw the uh nine-year-old she was sitting over in a chair and she was kind of on her ipad Mm -hmm. and i just walked up and i sat down next to her and i said what are you doing she said i'm texting mom (laughs) and i said oh let me see where's your text to dad and I just had a moment with her, and i got to be honest, the part of that moment was rooted in what you were just saying about, hey, they're going back to school. But it was rooted in the idea that, um, you know, I saw this guy talking the other day, and he was saying that you have things that go on your resume, and then there are things that people talk about at your funeral. And he said, more often than not, they're not the same things. Like, nobody's <laughs> nobody's yeah. going to be sitting at your funeral going, oh, he hosted... So many radio shows and, you know, unless you're Bill Shonley. And, of course, that's the whole funeral. But it's like, <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, they're going to be talking about, you know, was he a good dad? Yeah. Was he a good husband? Yeah. You know, did he make people feel good when he was around him? Right. Right. They're going to be saying that stuff. And so I just said, like, yeah, I'm up against it with the show. Mm-hmm. I had some things I needed to do, but I just plopped down next to the nine-year-old and took a minute. Just to say to her, hey, you're kind of important to me. Well, and I do think that has a lot. For, I don't know if about for you, but for me, it has a lot to do with the fact that we have a 20 year old and the fact that she, you know, I've been in her life since she was really young and I got to see firsthand how quickly it goes. It's like you blink and you're like, oh, my gosh, it's middle school. You blink again and high school's done. Like here she is. She's going into her junior year of college. I know, I can't believe how it. did that happen? I can't believe and it. And so I think we are uh fortunate to have that perspective it's a lot of the reason that i dropped back to part-time work 
once we had the little ones because I was like, I don't, I know how fast it goes, man. It, this it, is this is gonna be this is gonna be a roller coaster. It's weird things for me now. Like today, she texted me the oldest daughter who's yeah. at Oregon State. And yeah, she's in student government at Oregon State, and so she got invited into this town hall meeting about Oregon State's future wow in football okay okay so she's in there <laughs> as you know like one of the student government representatives yeah. listening to scott barnes and she texted me she's like i'm listening to scott barnes talk about <laughs> oregon state's future and i was like this is so weird for i me. know <laughs> simultaneously this morning i got a note from you know when uh you know when your kid is little and your kid gets born and then your kid goes to like jamboree class and yeah. then you're you know you're, you're around other kids you meet other kids well, one of the kids that she was in Jimboree class with and got to know that was a little younger than her is at Oregon State today doing a recruiting visit because hmm. she's a soccer player. Oh, cool. At, from California now. And so she's a soccer player who has been offered a scholarship to Oregon State. And so wow. the dad reached out to me and said, hey, what the hell's going on with this Pac-4 thing? Pac-12, Pac-4, Pac-2. You know, my kid's got a scholarship offer at Oregon State. Like, you know, is are they going to be a Power 5 school? And I said, well, tell me what they're selling you. I'm really yeah. interested in what they sell you today yeah. when you're there as part of your official visit. And yeah. he and I said, what is your mindset? And he said, you know, we won't make a decision until we know where they're going to be. Mm -hmm. They want to know. Yeah, of course. But, and their kid's got options. And there's no urgency to it. Like, you know, I said to him, I think, I think it gets resolved here pretty quickly. But... I kind of got the impression that they were rooting for uh, a rebuild of the Pac-4. Yeah. Like, they want to see their kid play. So they want to be able to see games maybe potentially against Stanford and Cal in the Bay Area. That's their closest Pac-12 school. And they want to be able to see their kid, you know, travel around the West Coast. So I think, you know, even if it were kind of a Mountain West Conference hybrid that becomes the Pac-12, I think that they still would be involved in it. And I kind of think that's where non-revenue generating sports are going to end up. It's going to be very regional. Because I know, I played baseball in college. Okay, I played small college baseball. But you know what was important to me? Stay in the western part of the United States. Play somewhere where if my parents wanted to come see a game, they could see a game. Uh, play somewhere that wasn't that far from home. Stay in the good weather. Like, you know, I wasn't, but my mentality and every other player in that league I played in the mentality was not, hey, we need to get to the biggest conference in America and play like Texas and, you know, Oklahoma and LSU and baseball. We weren't on that level. How much would that suck right now if you're a family that is faced with that decision, especially if it's imminent, you know, and you're having to like make that call? You've got to be asking for extensions on deadlines until this whole thing gets sorted out. Yeah, because out. you're getting offered scholarships. And Scott Barnes, you know, he came on the show last week, and he said that they had two volleyball athletes on campus, both of them committed to Oregon State. But, you know, I'm uh, did they sign or did they just verbally commit pending where you end up? <laughs> yeah. Like, I think it's a big how many How many asterisks? How many asterisks are on that signature letter? You know? Because there's such a thing. Like, you know, I've had multiple parents over the years who will reach out to me and say, yeah. hey, is my kid a Pac-12 athlete? Right. Okay? Right. Is my kid, can my kid play in the Pac-12? And there's a difference between walking on in the Pac-12 and being on a team and being in the team photo and never seeing the field and actually getting to play. Okay? There's a difference. 
And so I have, you know, over the years gone, well, who else is recruiting your kid? Yeah. And if the answer is, you know, hey, UCLA is recruiting my kid, uh, Purdue is recruiting my kid, um, you know, uh, Iowa is recruiting my kid, um, you know, yeah. versus, you know, Western Oregon is recruiting my kid, and, you know, UC Davis is recruiting my kid. It's a pretty easy for me to go, hey, well, I kind of look at the company of who's recruiting your kid. And, you know, coaches aren't going to lie to you. Right. If your kid can play, they will find you and they will offer you a scholarship. Like, they're, you know, this isn't a charity. You know, that brings up something that we ran into just yesterday. We ran into a dad whose kid, uh, per, you know, proverbially is going to play at a college-level sport of some kind. I didn't even know what sport it was. Was it baseball or something? And they were having a discussion, like a strategy meeting, about how to get the kid on Instagram and Twitter and how that's going to factor into his recruitability. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a whole thing that parents are having to embark on right now. And I, I guess it's important, right? Like, if they're talking about it, how important is that really? I think it becomes... Your kid has a strong social media presence as, say, a high school sophomore or junior. I think it becomes more important now that name image likeness is a thing. Mm-hmm. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to be totally unprepared. Yeah. On the other hand, I think I do think there's such a thing as going too far with it yeah. and being too involved in it and focusing too much on that yeah. versus maybe the actual development of the player. Yeah. So, you but know, it's just got to be part of the package. Those yeah. things have to walk hand in hand. And and I'll say this, you know, the parent who was sitting down with his kid to have this conversation, we were in a coffee shop mm-hmm. and, you know, we, I kind of overheard some of it. Yeah. And I kind of knew what it was about. I thought it was about scouting service or right. something. I was getting bits and pieces. Yeah. And then I said, what are you guys doing? And he said, you know, we're talking about social media and talking yeah. about, you know, building a profile for a kid. And so I do think it's important that parents are at least tuned into that. Yeah. Because what you get, the uh, the alternative to that is you get a kid who just crafts together an Instagram profile with a bunch of nonsense on it. Right. And I have to tell you, the coaches do look at that stuff. And they will look at it through the prism of, what is this kid about? Mm-hmm. So I do think you have to think about, like, you know, are you filming stupid videos that show you making bad decisions on social media where you know it's going to raise some alarm bells about sure. your character yeah. or your judgment? Yeah. You need to think about that. But you don't have to, like, create the next baby grunk. No, you don't right? want to do that either. <laughs> and you don't want it to be, you don't want the Instagram profile to be the centerpiece. Yeah. The centerpiece has to be the kid. Yeah. has to be the athlete. The, in, the Instagram and the Twitter profile should be complimentary. Mm-hmm. You should be thinking about everything that you tweet and post. Mm-hmm. You should be thinking about who you follow and who you don't follow. You should be decide who, who you are and what you're about mm-hmm. and have the Twitter you know, your feed and your Instagram feed should reflect that. Can I just say, I'm so glad. Maybe it's fresh on my mind because I just celebrated a birthday yesterday, but I'm so glad I didn't grow up with social media. I know. Can you imagine? I, I would have been terrible for I, me. I, and like, we got to figure out how to manage it with the younger ones. The older one, she's obviously a pro at it. She's good. But she will even tell you, like, We've had real conversations with her, obviously, because she's right in that sweet spot where she's in that um, kind of exploratory 
uh, group of young girls yeah. that got on Instagram. They and were the first. Like, first. They uh, were the guinea pigs. Yeah, they were the first users. And it didn't really go so well for a lot of them. Like a lot of them wound up depressed and anxious and really with terrible self-esteem um, because of the pressure of social media and what that does to like an adolescent girl's brain. I think it's just kids in general because you, they don't get a break. I used to get in my mom's car at three o'clock after school. Yeah. And school was in the rearview mirror. And my mom would drive to the grocery store and then we'd go home. Yeah. And, and if I didn't want to hear from somebody or have a conversation about school, I didn't have to till the next morning. Yes. And the problem for kids now is that it's right there on their phone and they can't escape it. Yes. And so I think that is that noise is there all the time. But I'll say this to our 20 year old's defense. Like, in her defense, I will say she's more mature than I am. Okay? Oh, for sure. Yeah. She's nicer than I am. Yeah, 100%. Okay? So let's start yeah. with that as a baseline. <laughs> she, you know, she's grounded in a way that is rarely, really mature and unusual. And it's been interesting for me to watch her because I watched her kind of navigate social media, Instagram, because it came up with her. Right. Like it kind of Snapchat and Instagram blossomed as she was, you know, a 13 year old girl. Now she's 20. Yeah. So um, it's just been interesting to kind of watch her navigate it. And I'm looking at her now and now she's like this brand endorser for a coffee company and a clothing company and yeah. a social media network. And yeah. she's making money on it, yeah. helping other people understand how to use it. And I'm going, you know, where did you learn that? You know where she learned it? She learned it by trial and error. She mm -hmm. learned it by making some of the mistakes herself. I can remember one time she got ripped off on Instagram. She was distraught <laughs> because she thought she was buying a pair of jeans from somebody on Instagram. They took like 25 bucks from her. She was just distraught. And I said, hey, that's a $25 lesson. That that will save you from like a $2,500 lesson when you're an adult it's true. because you know now that you can't trust people and you won't don't send people money unless you have a product in front of you. And mm -hmm. but it's just little things like that that you pick up, I think, over time. And I think the generation that had the hardest time with social media was my generation because we weren't equipped. We didn't grow up on it. Yeah, it was new. Suddenly I didn't have a phone till I was like 28 years mm -hmm. old. And so all of a sudden you had especially like grownups who were in like jobs that they had cultivated and reputations they, running, they had built. Like for me, it's the the small business owner who is, you know, in that in that age range. Right. And who's now running a business and needs an online presence on social media. But this isn't what they, they don't know knowing. how to do it. So they've they I, I mean, if they're smart, they hire somebody who's in their 20s who knows what they're doing to, to run their social media for them. I can remember years ago, this is five, seven years ago, there were t two that stand out to me that were interns on this show, okay? They applied for an internship. We used to have loads of interns that would come through the door. And I would kind you of- Used to? What happened? I would kind of peruse, <laughs> I'm not involved in it anymore. I, but I'm I would an intern, I don't know if you know Yeah, that. Yeah, Steven's there. <laughs> but I would kind of peruse as I'm trying to decide, like, you know, does the, is this person someone I can put in a position where, you know, some trust mm -hmm. involves some trust because mm -hmm. there's some trust things that happen here on the show. And I had one individual whose Instagram profile was littered with, with? profanity. Okay. Okay. Profanity and explicit lyrics on songs. Right. And I immediately dismissed her. Really? Yep. I was like, not. 
It's not that you're against profanity or explicit lyrics. It was the right? her judgment. I looked at her judgment yeah. and I said, you are in a, pro-, and I told her, I said, you're in a professional role. You may want to go look at your, your social Isn't media profile. Is that fair profiles. though to judge somebody's yes. pr- private, I guess if they, if they make their Instagram public. It was public. And then it's just out there for the world to see, then yeah, that is a judgment thing. And it, you know, you're welcome to do that, but if you're trying to go into professional settings, set it to private. The, the other guy that I dismissed and I said, you can't be part of the show. Uh-huh. was someone who had a domestic violence rant Oh, saying basically... <laughs> in favor of it? <laughs> not in favor, but kind of being an apologist uh-huh. for, you know, like almost raising the idea that um, sometimes people push you to the point where you're going to break. Yeah. I just wasn't comfortable with it. Yeah. And I was like, I can't really have you around. Yeah. You know, like in... I, but I think it, I see it as a service. It's the same as... You know, I had a young intern named Chris one time who came in. First thing is he brought his girlfriend to the first day on the job. Second thing was he looked like he was at a video arcade. He has his he had his hat on backwards. He was dressed unprofessionally. And I pulled him aside and I said, "Hey, this is this is a real deal. Come back tomorrow like you're actually working at a place that that, you know, you have some pride in." Mm-hmm. And you know what? He he he's now working as an executive at Starbucks. Yeah. And he's thanked me numerous times. He said that first day, you, he said, you chewed me out. And I didn't really think I chewed him out. I just kind of said to him, hey, man, you're not in college anymore. This is the real world. The key part of that story is you didn't think you chewed him out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and yet. I just, I don't know. I just have a, I, I, I wasn't born with that filter. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. I don't try I to do. be harsh, but I think sometimes I people take too long <laughs> to be like, like, I could have said to him, hey, Chris. You know, I know you're just coming out of college. This yeah. is your first thing. Yeah. You're real excited to be here. Yeah. And your girlfriend probably wanted to see the studio, and she thought she was, you know, this is impressive that you're working on the show and everything, and it's cool. And I don't, you know, I don't mind that she came along, but by the way, you got your backwards hat on. Yeah, that's not how you said it. I guarantee that's not no. how you know. I know how I said it. Said I it. I popped the door open and I said, hey. What's your name? He said, Chris. I said, come back tomorrow. Go home now. Come back tomorrow like this isn't a video arcade. And I closed the door. <laughs> and he you left. Know, he left. If he... there was one thing I could say about you, it's that your intent usually yeah. is good. It's usually spot on, but it's the way you deliver the message. Yeah. And this kind of carries over to many aspects of your interactions, yeah. but, including the ones with right. me. But here's another one. Here's another one that I remember vividly. <laughs> Wives, you hear me there? I had this guy... Uh, who now owns businesses? He's he's gone on and been successful after interning on this show. It seems to be a stepping stone for people. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So he uh, he reaches out to me via email. And he says, "Hey, I I have an internship with you." And he says, "Can you give me the address of the studio?" Oh yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I replied, "No, no, if no." Because if you can't find the studio, I don't need you here. Exactly. Google it. I know. You know. I know. I Ask know. Sergey Brin where the studio is. I've I've got I've stolen that one from you a few times. Don't yeah. make it. And that's that's a big peeve of mine. Yeah. Don't ask me where the studio is. I know. Show me that because part of the job is research. Yeah. Part of the job is thinking for yourself. Yeah. Take, Don't take be, like ninety excuse seconds. Excuse me. Take ninety seconds. Yeah. To demonstrate that you care yeah. enough to figure out where the studio is that you want. To intern at and hopefully use it as a stepping stone to the next step in your career. Because there's nothing worse. Because that's the intern that comes in and then goes, 
what do you want me to do? Mm-hmm. And you go, why don't you uh, put together, uh, go do research on all the NBA first-round draft picks of the last five years and how many of them graduated college, okay? Yeah. And they'll say, well, how do I do that? No. Yeah, and then no. Well, how do I do that? No. And how do I do No, they want you to tell them how to do it yeah. instead of just doing it. Yeah. And I just go, never mind. Yeah. Never mind, because I can't do that. I can't. I can't tell you go door to door. You know, I I can't do that for you. That's part of the job. Mm-hmm. Leave it here. I can't decide if this is good or bad. Help me out with this one, Stephen and Anna, listeners. The Department of Justice is doing nil deals. That's right. The Department of Justice is doing name, image, likeness deals with college athletes. And they have selected some San Diego State basketball players to promote fentanyl awareness and prevention. Oh. Okay. Um, You know how you see, you go to a football game and you'll see that it's Military Appreciation Day or something. And the teams will have kind of a camouflage theme to their uniforms. And they do some kind of recognition during the game, like, you know, for the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, or the Marines usually, or maybe all of them. Um, Those days, people don't know this, are often sponsored by the branches of the military. So they're paying the universities to make it like U.S. Army Day or Army Appreciation Day or Join the Navy Day. Um, And they're using marketing dollars to uh, subsidize the teams. And so often, like I can remember the Blazers even did this over the years as a promotion where they would say, stand up if you've been in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Marines, it's Military Appreciation Night. People went, that's really nice of the Blazers to do this. And then I found out that the branches of the military were paying for that recognition and Mm. paying for that awareness, that visibility. They shouldn't have to pay for that. Um, Fentanyl awareness. Let's just say you're an athlete. Yeah. Department of Justice comes to you, says, hey, we want you to uh, talk about fentanyl. Done. You would do it. I take the money. Is it like, is this on the rung of like things you would endorse? No, because, like, as an athlete, I mean, not everybody's the same, but, like, I would feel great taking money, especially to promote um, an idea that was for the betterment of others. I mean, you know, there's, like, repping nutrition drinks or T-shirts, and then there's, like, I guess, partnering with it's, – it's the idea – it's the same idea as doing, like, a PSA. Right. But getting paid for it. Like, I would totally be down with that. It's Wouldn't you? The first of its kind. Yeah, because I think, yeah, you're right. Because I, you know, first when I saw it, I went, whoa, that's weird. Like, is that a thing? And then the more I read about it, it's the first of its kind. The Department of Justice is paying for it. It's brilliant. And three or four San Diego, and they're doing it in San Diego where, you know, there's large Navy presence there. Is that right? Navy? Yeah, yeah, Navy. Navy. Yeah. That's where the uh, Top Gun is. You're just there. I know I was there, but I sometimes (laughs) I get Air Force and Navy, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry, apologies yeah. to Air Force and Navy yeah. people. Yeah, keep but, going. But keep, I think of Tom keep, Cruise. Keep on winding that. One. I don't think of Tom Cruise as Navy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The Top Gun. Right. I think of that as Air Force. Yeah. But it's not. It's Navy. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. There you go, Maverick. Yeah. All right. Leave it here. The five o'clock hour. The happy hours ahead. We're gonna do the five at five. So much ahead. I have respect too, by the way, for the Army, Navy, the Air Force, and the Marines. Much respect. All of them. Anna is ready for the 5 at 5. Anna, can I ask you before this start the 5 at 5? 
Can I ask a question? Yeah. Yeah. Will your 5-at-5 five five include anything about Utah's quarterback predicament? Uh-uh. No. Should it? No. Okay. But I want to, if it's not going to include it, I want to talk about it for a second before the 5-at-5. Five five. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just for a second. This is proof positive. We have no editorial consulting before this 5-at-5 five five happens. I don't like... I don't like structure. Yeah, I know. I don't think structure is realistic. I don't think it's... No. No, I don't. You mean for a radio show? Life. Yeah, really? You have a general idea, if you leave your house, that you're going to the grocery store. Yeah. Do you know where you're going to park? No. Do you know uh, exactly how long it's going to take you to get there? Do you, do you do leave that. the house knowing the route, or do you make up the route as it's unfolding in front of you? But see, like, some people really enjoy having a lot of structure. It makes them, it relieves yeah. their anxiety to have what, structure. What space, parking space are they parking in? They don't know. You get into the parking lot and you pick the spot. Yeah. You get one up front, you go, look at me! It's a great yeah, parking spot. Tell people how to live, but, uh, I'm just saying, too much structure yeah. takes the uh, authenticity out of things. Okay, I see where you're going with that. You know, before the show, but I told... again, as evidenced, we really don't talk about the 5 at 5 hardly ever. I don't, I don't I don't, like structure on the show. I don't think it's real. I, I think it ruins the show. It mm. smothers, it suffocates the show. Suffocates, suffocates it. I think um, Dwayne Hankins, Blazers president, wanted to come on the show. Two days ago, three days ago, I got yeah. a note. Uh, hey, can he come on? He wants to be on your show. I said, let me check. Let me look. I said, what time? They said, like, 3.20. And I said, I need to know if he's going to be, like, early. I just need to know because I'll probably break for a commercial right before he comes on so I can have a nice meaty segment for him. Normally, we break at 3.20. That's the commercial break. Mm -hmm. But uh, they said, well, he's going to show up at, like, 3.15. I said, highly doubt it. That's what I thought in my mind. So they say 3.15. So I broke, I think Stephen and I broke right around 3.15, 3.16. Yeah. And Dwayne Hankins, of course, called in at about 3.18. Yeah. And there he was, sitting there waiting when we started our segment at 3.20. Okay. Okay? That's as structured as I'm getting. Yeah. Okay? There's a little bit of structure there. Yeah. But beyond that, I got Stephen in my ear one segment earlier telling me, you have to break because we were way off time. Yeah. And uh, I broke. Yeah. You know? So- I, I was a little I, worried about it because you were just going off about how you yelled at all these people. I didn't I had to tell you what to do. <laughs> I thought you were going to yell at them. I didn't yell at them. I just gave it to him straight. He probably did yell at them, Stephen. Have I yeah, ever, yeah. Uh, Stephen? Have I ever yelled at you? No, not yet. See, how many, how many years have you been come. here? The day will come, Stephen. Don't worry. It's just, just a matter of time. Mentally gird yourself now for it. It's fine. Yeah, I can take it. It's fine. You want to get it out of the way? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> One time, uh, that reminds me. One time, I was covering Fresno State. They were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. They were undefeated. They were number six team in the country. They had uh, David Carr at quarterback. They were playing a road game at Hawaii, late deadline. Pat Hill, the infamous coach at Fresno State, was a loose cannon and a lot of fun to cover for that mm -hmm. reason. Oh, yeah, I bet. He had a piranha in a tank in his office, and you know, he'd feed it meat while you were sitting there doing an interview with him. You know, <laughs> He was just a little outside the box, and I liked him because of that. You know, He didn't have a suitcase. He had a glad trash bag with duct tape around it. Oh, that kind of guy. Yeah. So... Um, they lose at Hawaii. Okay. Okay. I'm on deadline. I need to get a quote. Yeah. So I'm walking down the ramp towards the locker room, and he's pissed. Pat Hill is pissed. Yeah. He's mad they lost the game. Sure. And 
he sees me coming down the ramp and he yells something indecipherable at me as I'm coming like 20, 30 yards away. I keep walking and he goes into the locker room and he pops the locker room door open and he says, and I mean that. Okay. And that's all he said. I said, I have no idea what Pat Hill just yelled at me, but I know what it's like to get yelled at by Pat Hill now. So, Steven, maybe we should get the yelling out of the way. Yeah. Just rip the Band-Aid. Just do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I've been right. yelled at before lots of times. It's okay. On that note, <laughs> the University of Utah, Cam Rising, quarterback, quarterback one, who we all thought would maybe start the opener, not start the opener. Um, there's been a lot of speculation about whether or not he will play. Okay? So, he hasn't been cleared yet by Utah, but he's participating in practices. So, I want you to read the tea leaves here. Um, there's been some talk about Bryson Barnes, who is arguably the number three quarterback, having to start the game. But Kyle Whittingham told reporters today that Nate Johnson and Bryson Barnes are now locked in a QB2 battle. He called it a dead heat for the backup position. That is being greeted on social media by Utah fans as evidence that Cam Rising, Cam Rising is going to start the game. Hmm. If a coach, Stephen, if a coach says, hey, Bryson Barnes and Nate Johnson are locked in a QB2 battle that is a dead heat, is he signaling that Rising's the starter? Uh, not in my opinion, no. I, I don't take it that way. I just take it as we all assume, well, we all know when Cam Rising's healthy, he's the number one. Like, it's unquestioned. So it's still, they're not battling for who's the number one quarterback. Is They're battling for who number two is. So if Cam Rising still has to miss the game, you're still starting your number two quarterback. You're not starting number one. So I don't, I don't assume that Cam Rising is going to play because of that. But I, I think from a coach standpoint, when the coach puts the quarterback on the field, he says that's my QB one today. I, I today, mean, I, I see what you're saying, but I don't, hmm. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't see it that way. I, I, I think Rising's going to start. I think he's tipping his hand. I think it's, I think it's Teddy KGB with the Oreo cookies right now. You know. Do you know what am I'm I, talking about? Am I supposed to know that reference? <laughs> I don't know, but it was a lot Rounders. of Do you know that reference? No, Rounders. No I am way Rounders. not hip enough. I just way appreciate Teddy all the listeners who got it. KGB? It's John Malkovich's character in the Rounders movie. Listen. Steven, you and I need don't splash the pot. You're on a draw, Mike. Go away. This one is not good for you. And in my club, I will splash the pot whenever I please. Check. That ace could not have helped you. You're right, Teddy. The ace didn't help me. I flopped the nut straight. Oh, man. Big moment in Rounders. Poker. Yeah. It's a poker movie. Yeah. I need to go back and rewatch that movie. That's Matt Damon and John Malkovich in like this phenomenal scene. His tell was Oreo cookies. Okay. When he had the cards, he would play around with the cookies in a different way. Yeah. And uh, your Matt, cool quotient just went up by a lot. Matt there. Damon picked up That's on good. it. Good. Good on you. Thank you for that. Yeah. All right. Moving on. I expect Cam Rising might be the starting quarterback. <laughs> that's that's the before the five at five news. <laughs> All right, uh, let's see what Kyle Winning. I think he kind of tipped his hand. Yeah. Because I think if Bryson, maybe he's just trying to put pressure on Bryson Barnes, saying, yeah. hey, Nate Johnson's in a dead heat with Bryson Barnes for the QB2 battle. Yeah. Because keep in mind, like, Barnes was QB3 
There was a player in front of him who got injured, has a serious injury, and then Cam Rising's QB won. So he's basically saying Bryson Barnes and Nate Johnson are in a battle for the QB2 position. It tells me that he knows he's got a QB1 that can play. But, but I he, don't know. He has one He has one on the roster. He doesn't know that it's going to play, though. Yeah, but isn't QB2 the – I'm blanking on the other quarterback's name, Love or something, you know. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Love. Like that. I don't it, know. So I'm, I'm saying – Shouldn't he say the battle is for QB3 or QB1? I, no, because Rising's number one. We all know this. But if Rising's not healthy, he's not QB1. Not on the depth chart, not for game week. Huh. I don't know. We're going to find out, Stephen. We are. We might we be head to head on out. this battle. <laughs> I think Teddy yeah. KGB yeah. just messed around with the yeah. Oreo cookies. Let's see if Stephen and I can go watch Rounders before we find out. <laughs> Let's make that That's a, a really That is a really good movie. Yeah. It's kind of a derivative of Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. All right, gambling mm-hmm. derivative. Mm-hmm. I'm so, I'm really surprised Stephen hasn't seen it. Yeah, you're a little John Rounders. Nash again now. Beautiful right. mind. Here we go. The five at five. The five at five. Anna has the number one story as she sees it. Uh, well, I'm surprised you guys haven't chatted about this little tidbit yet. Damian Lillard reposting. A Miami is waiting for you story on Instagram Mm. amid all these trade rumors with the Heat. Uh, I find it interesting that Bleacher Report refers to him as the disgruntled Portland Trailblazers guard. Would we all say that he's disgruntled? I think... In his own passive-aggressive way, he is. I, I okay. actually agree. I was going to say, if I unfollow somebody on Twitter and Instagram, it's because I'm disgruntled with them. Disgruntled. Okay. Yeah. Well, the story is like, Miami is waiting for you and your music. Seems like he must have dropped something music-wise. Do you think music's recently? the reason he's put Miami at the top of his list, that he thinks that's a good market for him to be in? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. You know, yeah, yes, I think that's part of the equation. It's far. Makes it's, sense. It's as far away as he can get from Portland, Oregon. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's kind of funny. I, I don't. I don't know if he has LinkedIn. We should check and see if he's still following the Blazers. If he's following the Miami Heat on LinkedIn. If he's unfollowed the Blazers yeah. on everything. What about MySpace. Threads? Yeah. Threads. threads. Anybody checked his threads? He's <laughs> <laughs> making sure we're covering all the bases. But he's posting a story basically doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on the idea that he's not happy. Yeah, so this is where I kind of go, okay, it's one thing to unfollow the team that's paying oh, your paycheck. Jeez. And now you're now he's just going into like a social media campaign, I guess, dropping hints there. I don't know. Where does this go? I don't like where this is going. It doesn't help. You it think- just makes me so uncomfortable. The Blazers are at a garage sale. Damian Lillard's walking around going, who would want this while they're trying to sell it? You know? Like, come on. He's not helping them. He's not giving them leverage. Meanwhile, Cronin's saying, you know, they've learned that patience is critical. Don't be reactive. (laughs) They're just going to wait this out? I think this is going to be an epic tug of war. I think any vendor who has ever been in business with the Blazers knows how this goes. It... The Blazers aren't going to do anything that they don't want to do, and they're not going to want to look dumb. Don't you think it's come to this because Aaron Goodwin has already exhausted the ability to negotiate 
something behind closed doors with the Blazers. Like yes. they're just up against a wall at this point. And so this is all they're, they can resort to. It's an impasse. They're at an impasse behind closed doors. That's the only reason why we're seeing it. And, and here's my suspicion. My suspicion is that Lillard may have asked for a trade long before we heard about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Long before. Right. And the Blazers kind of went, mm, we'll see, we'll see, and couldn't make it happen. I wonder if the narrative publicly about the Blazers, the, you know, the whole thing about the draft, are they going to keep the pick? Are they going to trade the pick? I just I wonder how much of that was real and how much of it was Lillard wanted out all along. Unfollowing them on Instagram and now trolling them on Instagram. He's basically posting the photo of the girl he wants to go out with after breaking. He's not even broken up yet. Yeah. Oh, now are, or is the public going to turn on him? Or not? No, not yet, not yet. But I don't, I don't know that we can handle like we being, you know, just Portland. You're, you're a Blazer. You're a Blazer fans, fan. Yeah, you're a Blazer fan. People who live here, living and married to a Blazer fan. And I don't know how much of this we can really handle. But do you That's, think? Do you think Portland ever really turns on Dame? Like, there's gonna be a lot of Dame fans that will never turn on him. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yes. think it depends. I think if he's in street clothes, game one, refusing to suit up. It, you could have an, a little bit of an uproar. I don't think that's going to happen. You're under contract. I, no, that's not going to happen. That couldn't happen. Anna. That could not happen. Anna, it's the Blazers. Sports fans go crazy? I don't think so. It's the Blazers. <laughs> but didn't the NBA issue a statement, basically? It's not the Blazers. Not so many words saying, if you're under contract, you need to fulfill your services. Well, they don't have to pay him. CC, Damian Lillard. They don't have to pay him. I really don't think Burt Cold and Jody Allen are going to want to look stupid here. So I think it's almost uh, the worst-case scenario for Camp Lillard because I don't think they have a reasonable, educated partner who's going to make a deal that's fair. The deal's going to have to be lopsided in the Blazers' favor because that's the only deal they will see as a fair deal. You know, does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay, number two. Well, should we talk about James Harden then? Did you already talk about that? Go. NBA issuing a maximum fine, $100,000. Trump change. For his comments about Daryl Morey basically calling Daryl Morey a liar back on August 14th. you got to be careful with the word liar. People throw it around a lot. It's it's a loaded word. And that's the kind of word where like, if, if Daryl Morey wanted to sue James Harden, yeah. the word liar... Is a uh, is that what is it defamation libel libel or defamation depending on if it's written or said oh. um, it, libel if it's written look at you um, also here's the thing first amendment law yeah That's but here's right. the thing like you can, like I know that like I can't call someone in print a liar yeah unless I know they have knowingly misled yeah see that's the thing. Okay, so and, he spoke at an event in China. Yeah, I had the audio on it. It's bad audio. He but. says, Daryl Morey is a liar. And he said it again. Right. In fact, he said, let me say that again. Daryl Morey is a liar, and I will never be. How do you say liar in Mandarin? Uh, uh, so, I know how to say lie, like suo huang means right. to lie. So say Daryl Morey told a lie. Yeah, Daryl Morey suo huang. If he would have said that, those kids would have been beside themselves. Instead, they were like, great, now where do we dribble? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> 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 I 
There was a bunch of confused 10-year-old Chinese kids oh watching James Harden <laughs> defame his general manager. And, and Harden's objective here is to make Daryl Morey so uncomfortable yeah. that he has to trade him. Is it going to work? I don't think so. Really? I think we're about to see a reckoning where the general managers and owners of the league go, you know what? We're paying you a lot of money. You're not going to be able to just call us liars and get out of your deals, you know, or trade him somewhere he doesn't want to go. In the end, Lillard and Harden both want the same thing. They're going about it a little differently. Number three. Uh, this is a really strange one. I don't know what happened here, but at the home of Caleb Farley, he is a Tennessee Titans oh, football player. Did you see this? It's so sad. So there was yep. some kind of massive explosion at his $2 million home. It leveled the home, and it killed his own father, who was living there. Injured someone else. Um, there's no hard evidence yet on what actually caused this explosion. Is gas involved? I don't know. I mean, you think? Here's Titans coach Mike Vrabel talking about it. We do everything that we can to support Caleb, his family, um, and, and do everything that we can to, to be there for him, support him. That That's the most important thing, is to focus on him uh, and not any of the... You know, the, the everything else is, is pretty trivial. So his 61-year-old father, Robert Farley, was killed in that explosion. This happened in North Carolina. We're talking about a 6,300-square-foot home, which has been reduced to rubble by this blast. Remember the, the house in Pennsylvania that exploded? That They were looking at a gas line behind the house. They were looking at all sorts of things mm -hmm. that could have been involved. Anytime you see an explosion like that, you know, in Pennsylvania, I think they were talking about a hot water tank having an issue. Mm. But um, and those investigations still going on. But yeah, man, be careful out there. Sad stuff. Yeah. Number four. Um, so, you know, we were talking about recruits earlier. Uh, Georgia high school sophomore Julian Lewis. He's only a sophomore. Everyone's talking about this guy. He's a quarterback at Carrollton High School in Georgia. He's committed to the University of Southern California to play for Lincoln Riley, who, you know, has developed a few Heisman Trophy winners along the way. He's uh, six foot one, 190 pounds. It was uh, down to eight schools, USC, Alabama, Georgia, Oregon, LSU, Ohio State, Florida State, Texas A&M. And he chose the Trojans. So Jen Cohen will get to know him. Well, allegedly. Allegedly. You know, he's he's uh, trying to follow in the footsteps of Caleb Williams. But, you know, will Lincoln Riley be at USC? That's a question. Will Lincoln Riley, after Caleb Williams leaves, get an NFL opportunity? I don't know. I, don't, I haven't spoken enough with Lincoln Riley to know his aspirations for the NFL or not. But I think at some point, a lot of those coaches look to move on. And this is a class of 2026, kid. That's forever. <laughs> you know? That's forever. But good for him. Good for USC. Apparently he wants to play in the Big Ten. And uh, Alabama, Florida State, Oregon, and some others will have to try to get uh, second-chance sweepstakes on him if he uh, wavers. His, his coach, Joey King, 
won two state titles with Trevor Lawrence mm. at that same high school. Little known fact there. There you go. There it is. Okay. I love I love when you bring up a sports fact. I know. And you're proud of yourself. I'm really proud. She had a big smile on her face when she gave that. Well, mostly because I know who Trevor Lawrence is, just because I saw him once in a Vegas casino. So that's you know. That was weird too, because you spotted Trevor Lawrence. Yeah. I didn't. Well, I didn't know who he was. But you said, "Hey, that's is Trevor Lawrence a big deal?" Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah." Because he had he was walking through the casino and there was all these people with him. He was the tallest one, and it became obvious that he was somebody that was known. So I asked, like, one of the security guards, I was like, who's that guy? He's like, oh, he's probably going to be, like, the number one draft pick. Yeah, he, well, and he was. And he was? He went on to be. There you go. All right, number five. Gosh, it feels like this is taking forever. I'm no, sorry. Yeah, it's great. It's a great segment. Is this number five? This is five, I believe. All right. Um, well, do you want to hear about the Mariners pitcher throwing 47 consecutive fastballs? Yeah, sure. What else you got? Or the little leaguer that listed Shohei Otani as his favorite superhero. Okay. There's not really much right. more to say about that, except there was a little leaguer in playing in the World Series who was asked who his favorite superhero was, and he said it was Shohei Otani. That's not a bad answer. So cute. Who is your favorite superhero? Me? Yeah. Superman. <laughs> Duh. Hmm. How about you? Uh, I'm old school. I'd probably I don't know go, who like, I, Ant-Man is or any of these new people. I don't know why, but when you ask that question, I see kind of the uh, the cartoons of the 1980s. Okay. Where they're all at, you know, the Hall of Justice. Yeah. And the only superheroes I see are Superman, Aquaman, and Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Your favorite's Wonder Woman? N- well, no. I think I'd go Superman as well. It's oh. kind of purist. Yeah, right. Right. Um, all right. What? Tell me about the uh, forty-seven okay. fastballs. So let's talk about that then. Uh, Luis Castillo uh, Monday evening was starting against the White Sox, and he had a lot of success with his fastball. So during a forty-seven pitch stretch between the fourth inning and the seventh inning, he exclusively threw. A combination of four seam fastballs to the White Sox. So, with that, he only surrendered three hits, did not allow a run to cross the plate. And uh, I don't know. I found this kind of amusing. I don't know yeah. how unusual that is. I found it. I found the coverage of it amusing. Oh, okay. I I think it's it's worth talking about because, you know. The White Sox have had a bad season, and so they, they are a little bit like a pinata in that they're an easy target to kind of batter around. And the the news story I saw said that Castillo threw the same pitch 47 times in a row. Ha, 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 they didn't hit it. But that's not true because he's throwing a two-seam fastball, he's throwing a four-seam pa- fastball. It's two different pitches with a little bit different movement. And he could throw it at different speeds. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like he threw the same well, pitch never, in the same place. He never place. registered below 94 miles an hour throughout, you know, the fourth to the seventh inning. Yeah, but it, he can throw that pitch mm-hmm. with two seams and four seams. Yeah. Meaning with the seams or against them. Mm-hmm. The ball will move a little different. He yeah. can change locations. Uh-huh. And he can change with a few miles an hour. It'll disrupt timing. So... <laughs> He said he wasn't aware that he was throwing it so oh, much. I think okay. he probably was, but he says he wasn't aware yeah. that he was throwing mostly fastballs. But um, I think 
you know, he's a good, he's a really good pitcher. And sometimes, if you don't have your breaking ball, and you can throw your two seam or your four seam fastball, and you're getting people out, you stay with what's working. Well, that's what he did. Oh, that was the other story that didn't make the five, but I thought about it. Was the White Sox talking about possibly moving to Nashville? Because I guess their contract for the stadium expires in six years, and they're making noise and throwing out Nashville as a possible place to relocate to. How about that? There you go. Well, uh, you know, there's people that... uh there's people that would like to eliminate Nashville from the competition that Portland, if Portland wants to get an MLB team, I don't see Nashville as a direct comp competitor for that because it would be an Eastern team, not a Western team. I think the competition's more like Salt Lake and potentially the Bay Area if they want to replace the A's in the San Jose market or something like that mm-hmm. or Vancouver, B.C. Those are the cities you have to worry about if you're a MLB to PDX person. Mm-hmm. So I, But I, I think any time if you can get a team – to a uh, expansion market like Nashville, if you're if you're playing chess and you're somebody in Portland, getting the White Sox to Nashville is not a bad thing mm-hmm. because it would eliminate Nashville as a option, and then maybe maybe Salt Lake and Portland get expansion teams. Yeah. I don't know. Nashville kind of feels like the Vegas of the East. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. But by the way, back to Luis Castillo. Yeah. Okay. You have more to say. He's got about a that? slider. Yeah. He's got a sinker. Uh huh. He's got a curveball. And sometimes the threat of throwing those pitches is as good as not throwing them. I see. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He's getting guys out. Forty seven pitches. How many batters did he face in that stretch? I don't know. Between the fourth and the seventh that's, inning? Is that, that requires a no, just level tell me. of research? No, you I told me he gave know. up three hits, so that's three batters. Now tell me, was it fourth to seventh? <clears throat> yeah, fourth inning to the seventh inning. That's four innings. So twelve he faced fifteen hitters. So, you know, six hitters saw him twice. So maybe on those six hitters, they, they have some answers. They have some questions about, all right, what did you swing at the first pitch? How many pitches did you see? You know, because I think from the dugout perspective, if you're paying attention during a game, hitters will tell you they know if you're throwing strikes early in the count. They'll know, mm-hmm. is he throwing a curveball for a strike early in the count? What did he throw you? They'll ask each other mm-hmm. as they come back to the dugout if they're not seeing it already. Yeah. And they'll say, oh, he threw me a fa- he threw me a four-seam fastball. He threw me a two-seam fastball. He threw me a slider. And so if they're not sharing that information, if they're in such a downward spiral that they're just coming back to the dugout quietly yeah. after they're Moping. out, maybe that's part of it. Yeah. But mm. Seattle, by the way, that was uh, win number not- seven in a row. Mariners. Mariners are Look out. doing well. Got to make a run like they did last year. Leave it here. Well, we talked on uh, yesterday's show a little bit about Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach, getting a little, a little testy with reporters. Um, I and I just don't think it was that bad, and it got me thinking about the evolution of first-time head coaches. Right, we've had some first-time head coaches in our in our uh, era, in our state, in our region. Chip Kelly had never been a head coach before. Uh, before he was handed the reins at the University of Oregon, and he did pretty well. But I think there were some hiccups early in Chip Kelly's tenure. He had some issues with discipline. He uh, had uh, you know, some policies and procedures where he refused to suspend players during the offseason. He said, I don't understand the point of suspending a player during the offseason. And, and uh, eventually he changed that policy, and he determined that he should um, – he should be in the uh, business of suspending players who were in trouble, even if it was the off season, and kind of watched him develop into a head coach who 
By the way, when Chip Kelly first took over the job at Oregon, he used to drive from Eugene all the way to Portland once a week during the season for the Duck Luncheon. He would show up in Portland. He'd show up at the luncheon. He'd talk about the game that week. Um, he'd, uh, you know, they'd eat chicken and rice pilaf, pass around the game ball. You know, they'd say Arizona State. They got a great defense. Let's talk about them. You know, they taught. They it was a tradition that extended from Rich Brooks to Mike Bellotti. Chip Kelly did it for his first year, maybe year and a half, before he decided, ah, I, I don't know if that's a good use of my time. And I only know this because he used to call into this show when he was making that drive. He would be listening. He would call in. We'd do an interview. And, you know, people would say, well, how did you get him on a day off? Well, I got him because he was in the car. He was held captive. And so he was, uh, during that, you know, hour and 40 minutes from Eugene to where the luncheon was held in Portland, Chip Kelly would make a call to the show. And then he would drive back the same night in I think he finally got tired of doing it, and he said, I'll Zoom in instead. And so they did the equivalent of a Skype interview or a Zoom interview. I think it was Skype at the time. And uh, the the boosters didn't like it as much. And if you were somebody who used to go to those duck athletic fun luncheons, the duck club, whatever you call it, um, you know, uh, I had friends that were there. They would say, oh, it was great. And, you know, Blotty came, and he told us this is what they're going to do on third down in a key situation, so everybody's looking for it. Really made the fans feel included but chip kelly didn't see the value of it after a while and and i and i gotta be honest he changed a little bit for media members myself included he became a little less accessible i can remember talking to the beat reporters at the time who covered the team and i'd say you know feels like he's playing a little bit more to the national media than he is the local media because every coach does that when they first arrive Dan Lanning, Gary Anderson, Jonathan Smith, they first look at the people who are going to cover the team on a daily basis, and they really worry about managing them from a media perspective. Then as they grow as a coach, if they get some success, as Jonathan Smith and Dan Lanning both have, I think they expand that circle a little bit to kind of worrying more about national media members. It's true. It's happened. It's human nature. Um, but So I kind of watched Chip Kelly do that early in his tenure, And he suddenly was more interested in, like, the ESPN and the Yahoo Sports reporters and stuff like that. And I took that to mean that he had aspirations that were beyond being the head football coach at Oregon. He was worried about what they were going to say about him nationally. What are they saying about him as he's trying to recruit nationally, as he's auditioning for jobs nationally? So you see coaches who will evolve both with their discipline and how they handle their program, how they handle assistant coaches, how they handle recruiting – and I think we've had a front row seat at Oregon for Chip Kelly, then Mark Helfrich, then Mario Cristobal, who had been a coach, but, you know, just for a spell, then Dan Lanning. And we're watching, we're watching Dan Lanning right now as a first-time, second-year head coach, you know, decide, like, hey, what did I do last year? What could I do differently? You know, and, and gone is... Kind of the, he's always going to be nice. He's always going to be affable. He's always going to be engaging. And it's been replaced by Dan Lanning, who frankly was a little bit annoyed at reporters who were asking about the damn scrimmage and got a little testy with them. Are there a few factors that you think kind of were really key for the defense being better early in the day than they were last Saturday? They played better. I mean, I think that's the main factor. In, in what ways? Like, can you get into specifics of. Well, when the offense doesn't get a first down, the defense stops them. Like you guys are really digging in on this. Like they played better. 
at the beginning of the scrimmage. That's a challenge to see them start. I mean, I challenge every one of our players to play better. You noted four turnovers last week. You said there were a couple today. How many, yeah. how many were there today? I'm not telling you. Right. There were some turnovers. Dan Lanning. I liked it. I didn't mind it. Because what he's saying is I'm tired of hearing about the same old question. But I, but I want to kind of use it as an example of how a coach in his second year, as the expectations change, as his comfort level changes and his focus changes, how coaches can sometimes act a little differently. I think Jonathan Smith is acting a little bit differently. Now as a 10-win coach than he did, you know, maybe after his first season when he was 2-10. and 10. You know, after his first season at 2-10, and 10, you know, Jonathan Smith was appreciative that, you know, I brought him on this radio show. You know, he was just, uh, you know, happy that people were talking about him and probably more focused on, you know, the, the baby steps that you need to take early in a program. Now he's got, he's a 10-win head coach. He's fine-tuning. It's a different job, and it's it's the expectations are a little bit different. And I do expect, you know, he's learned some things in three or four or five seasons that he's now doing a little bit differently when it comes to his protocols at practice and treating media and what booster events that he will commit to. And, and Dan Landing will find his way there, too. I was thinking about this. I was flying back from San Diego uh, over the weekend, and I was thinking, you know, as I'm going through TSA, how nice it must be for some of these coaches who are traveling charter with all of their recruiting trips versus having to go commercial. How much easier it is to jaunt out of town and get back. If you're a coach who needs to get out, get back, make practice, especially that the, the fact that you can charter a plane is, is very different. And I, and I just kind of was thinking about it. And then the landing stuff popped up this week with him getting testy. I reached out to him. He said he didn't even know he was testy. Didn't think it was that big a deal. I actually don't think it's that big a deal either. But, you know, I was on Salt Lake City Radio, and Bill Riley, ESPN 700 in Salt Lake City, said to me, hey, you think Dan Lanning's feeling the pressure? And I said, I don't think it's like that. Like, there's pressure always at Oregon to win games. There's now pressure at Oregon State to win games. I just actually think he's been in fall camp now for I don't know how many days, but it's enough. They're fine-tuning. They're 10, 11 days from their season opener. And he's probably sick of being asked about the defense and thinks it's a dumb question when he says, hey, the defense was better early in the scrimmage versus late, and they say, well, well, why? Tell us why. And he's like, hey, you're really digging into this. They just were. They were better early than late. But I'll use it as a chance to kind of talk about the things we should look for this season. Ask yourself if Dan Landing and his coaching staff are going to be better with making game-to-game adjustments this season. That was a real area of emphasis and questioning at the end of the season. Fourth down, going from it for it on your own twenty-nine. Um, you know, not adjusting on the defensive side of the ball against Washington or Oregon State, really at any point. Really struggling on the defensive side of the ball in those two things. And I think you know I'll be watching that stuff, but I'm also kind of going to be watching like what is Dan Lanning's demeanor this season? Is he the same kind of happy-go-lucky, focused? Uh, you know. Uh, happy, joyful to be in his job guy, or does he seem to be feeling the pressure a little bit more? Jonathan Smith, same thing. He's you know he's he's in a really important season. They're coming off a 10-win season. This might be the last chance for Oregon State as a Power 5 opponent, or a Power 5 program, to get into the playoff as a Power 5 program. They've got access if they can get through the gauntlet that is this season. 
you know, will Jonathan Smith change a little bit, or will he be the same measured guy that we saw week to week last season? I'll keep an eye on all those things. Some parting thoughts coming up. You got the BFT statewide. Well, we're at that time of year where there's uh, incredible anticipation, I think, coming up with the season and simultaneously um, a little bit of angst at Oregon and Oregon State as the season approaches. Um, some uh, some uh, developments in the world of uh, Oregon and Oregon State. Uh, if you're just uh, tuning in, Oregon State is named DJ Uyunglele, the Clemson transfer, as the starting quarterback to open the season. Um, this is uh, this is a big uh, deal for DJ. It's a big deal for Jonathan Smith's program. Uh, I, I think it, it it sort of suggests that the plan that Jonathan Smith probably wanted to come true has, in fact, in fall camp, blossomed in a way that makes him feel comfortable. I think the fact that he named him the starter, he told him, informed him last night that he was starting. And, uh, you know, of course, DJ was excited, told some family members, and, you know, the rest is history. But uh, Aiden Childs, the fact that we're not talking about Aiden Childs as the potential starter, I'm going to take that as a good thing for Oregon State because it means that the upperclassmen that came in and everybody expected would win the starting job has, in fact, delivered. And I wasn't so sure in the spring. I wasn't so sure that DJ was going to, uh, you know, win the job in fall camp. And I kind of wondered, you know, what that was going to be about for Oregon State if, if in fact, DJ wasn't ready. We've had him on the show. We've talked to him about, you know, why he chose Oregon State. And uh, and uh, here's what he had to say. Yeah, no, I thought uh, going when I put my name in the portal, I thought there was a there's a handful of teams that I thought were really good. That I thought I, I could be able to go play at and just be able to just go to develop me and get me to the next level. And I thought Oregon State was number one on my list. I uh, love the way uh, how Coach Lingo runs the offense and Coach Smith. Um, love what they do with the pro-style system. For me, it almost feels like you're playing with the 49ers and like the and Sean McVay Rams when they had Jared Goff back there. So that was the biggest thing for me. I wanted to go somewhere. I want to play in a pro-style offense, get under center, uh, do some play-action pass, different run checks and be able to just grow my knowledge of the football game. I think it's really an interesting comment that DJ made there. Keep an eye on kind of the Brock Purdy style because I think there's some interesting comparisons with DJ and Brock Purdy um, and the style of play that they have and the fact that they can both use their legs a little bit to extend plays and also uh, hurt defenses. Brian Lindgren, the offensive coordinator, was on this show and I asked him to give a scouting report on Gulbrinson and DJ. This is from the spring. Yeah, Ben. Ben was. Uh, I mean, just his knowledge of the system and what we do. I mean, he's he's like a coach out there. He's been around for three years and, and knows it. Um, I think that the biggest growth for him in the off season is he's just becoming more fluid as an athlete. You know, with our strength staff and um, his ability to kind of. I know he's a drop back guy, but to be able to go get us a couple first downs a game with his feet. Uh, when things break down, and I think he actually he ran for a touchdown in the on a quarterback draw in the in the bowl game, and so I think him kind of developing that piece of his game, I think, will help him moving forward. And you obviously have DJ uh, in there in the transfer portal. A lot of people excited to see him, um, you know. And what are you seeing from DJ early on? I mean, he's just a strong, big, physical dude, man. That can that can rip the ball. I mean, he can he can really uh, you talk about like vertical passing game or big action 
um, and get some of those, you know, Silas Bolden, Anthony Gould, like pushing the ball down the field. I just, I mean, he can throw those, make all the throws that you want him to make, um, which has been pretty fun to kind of put him through some of those things. Um, and then just the experience, you know, having a guy that is, has started a lot of big-time games and has been a part of a big-time program for a couple of years, just that experience coming in here. Uh, I think is is always good to have at the quarterback spot. Look, uh, TJ Uyengalele getting the starting nod informed that he will be the starter. This guy with 36 touchdowns, 17 interceptions in three years at Clemson. Uh, his very first start uh, came against Notre Dame in 2020. Threw for 439 yards, which was a record for a visiting player at Notre Dame Stadium. But then he struggled the next year. He had 10 interceptions, 9 touchdowns. Was a little better last year before getting replaced, but um, you know, high recruit who uh, who you know just lost some confidence at Clemson. Greg Biggins, who covers recruiting for twenty four seven Sports, joined us to talk about that uh, in May. Uh, you know, basically setting the stage for DJ. What does DJ need in a in a quarterback room that has Aiden Childs and Ben Gulbrinson? What did DJ need? Here is Greg Biggins. He knows the kid better than anybody but here's yeah. what we don't need if you're a quarterback you have to know that you're the guy right you don't want to be looking over your shoulder and and it, he, he had Cade Klobnick at Clemson everybody knew that Cade was going to be the guy eventually and it seemed like almost from from Klobnick's spring ball it was already okay so how soon before he's going to be the starter and I just you can't play quarterback that way if you're a DJ if you're looking over your shoulder if you think gosh man one bad pass uh, you know, I'm yeah. you looking to the sideline. Are they going to pull me out right now? And you kind of start to squeeze the ball a little tighter. You're not throwing the ball, you know, free and easy. Um, you got to be comfortable. You got to know that your coach and your staff believe in you. And you have to know that, you know, you have the confidence to, to make mistakes. There it is right there. And I think that partly is why Jonathan Smith names him the starting quarterback on a Monday that is well in front of game week and where they're going to start game preparation for the San Jose State game. And I think they will not start their actual game prep till later this week. But Jonathan Smith making it clear that DJ is the guy. Uh, scouting report from Greg McElroy from an NFL perspective. Well, listen to this. DJ Uwe Ungalale. Now, his, he's not yet officially the starting quarterback. But I do believe that here in the near term, he's probably going to be anointed as such. Let's just remember who DJ Uwe Ungalale was back in 2020. The two starts that he made in the ACC for Clemson against both Boston College and against Notre Dame, the guy was really, really good. Now, he lost his way a little bit, lost some of the confidence there in 2021, bounced back early in 2022, threw for 10 touchdowns in his first four games. That was more than he had in the entire 2021 season, and then things came off a little bit towards the end. But now DJ Uyungle gets a fresh start. And he gets a fresh start in an offense that's not going to put so much on his shoulders. It's going to be an offense that wants to run the football, control the line of scrimmage, heavy play action. And one thing DJ Uyunglele can do is he can push the ball down the field off play action. So I think it is a perfect spot for him to end up. He's not going to be operating in the spotlight. He's not going to have people asking him a million questions. He's not going to have to do a bunch of ESPN and Fox interviews. There's less pressure. There's lower expectations. And now he gets a new lease on life at Oregon State. It'll be fun to see how they utilize him, and I think he's going to get a bunch of confidence-building opportunities in the early part of Oregon State's schedule. Keep in mind, it's San Jose State on a Sunday. It's then a home opener, uh, an opening, a reopening of Research Stadium against UC Davis. Then San Diego State at home, 
And then they begin conference play at Washington State and, of course, uh, in Week 5 at home against Utah. So it's a nice ramp up for a quarterback who needs some confidence. So keep an eye on those early games as Jonathan Smith tries to get DJ some confidence and some success and build on it because he really needs him to be at his best by Week 4, Week 5, or at least – uh, playing better football in week four, week five. And so, you know, it's not uh, a, a hiccup and a change of starting quarterbacks to start the season. All right. Uh, later in the week, we got Dan Landing, the Oregon football coach, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach, all of those guests uh, and more coming up. Grab a podcast of this radio show where you get a podcast. I appreciate you listening and bearing with me and tolerating me. And if you want to read me, you can read me exclusively now at johnconzano.com. Thanks to Stephen, thanks to Judah, thanks to the team of interns that I did not yell at today. The bald-faced truth is out. The Shoemail Shoe Stores, you can find them in Portland to Salem and online at shoemail.com. It's a great story, Shoemail. The Hubbard family, three generations strong. The grandparents used to run the original stores and they lived in the back of the store. Now, two generations later, the grandsons are running the operation and it's never been better. Fantastic customer service, outstanding selection. If you see it for yourself at any of their stores, stop in. We'll probably see you in the stores. Shoe Mill, they put the world at your feet.